This program deals with devil worship and satanic beliefs. It contains explicit scenes and descriptions of violent crimes and rituals. Americans are asking who attacked our country. You have declared a subliminal jihad against the United States. Can you tell us why? Everything pertaining to what's happening has never come to the surface. The world will never know the true facts of what occurred, my motives. And night fell on a different world. And Iblis is thinking, you know, I should be getting this position, not Adam, and this guy is created from dirt. And how did the army feel about you being head of the Temple of Seth? And the conspiracy theorists can say what they will, but... I want you to give me power over Adam, and I want you to give me soldiers and minions and all of these things. The people have, have so much to gain and have such a material motive for putting me in a position I'm in. We'll never let the truth back some of our boys to the, to the world. And I want you to be able to give me the ability to whisper into the hearts of mankind. And uh, who was the grotto leader? I don't remember his name. You don't remember the name of a person who involved you in murder? Now, these people are in very high position, Jack. Yes. Welcome back to Subliminal Jihad. I am your co-host, Dimitri. I'm Khaled. And today, we're going to do an episode on something that I'm pretty excited about and have been for months. Uh, This is something, this is a movie that I had planned on doing a Twitter thread on back when I rewatched it earlier on in quarantine this year and went on to watch it, I think, three or four times throughout this year. Um, But it was such a big subject that I think the subliminal jihad platform is the only one that can truly contain all the weirdness and uh, uh, prophetic insanity that this movie uh, that this movie contains, um, and uh, that is basically this film is a documentary that was released in two thousand nine called "We Live in Public." internet's like this new human experience. At first, everybody's going to like it, but there will be a fundamental change in the human condition. And one day, we're all going to wake up and realize that we're just servants. It's captured us. It was genius because nobody had done it yet. He was saying, this is the way it's going to be. And he was right. I mean, he was right. He was selling companies for a couple million dollars. Well, we were all a bunch of kids getting paid 10 bucks an hour to try and figure out HTML. Josh was one of these incredible new idols everybody suddenly wanted to be. I'm in a race to take CBS out of business. He was always trying to advance the inevitable. This is going to happen. Let's try it now. It is our function as artists to make the spectator see the world our way. People want 15 minutes of fame every day. So we built the bunker and showed him the future. I remember you telling me about this like years ago. Um, like, uh, really. We like, might have really even watched it ago. together back when I still lived in New York. I feel like we, uh, maybe it was with my, my roommate at the time. Um, and uh, But I definitely saw it around that time. It came out in 2009 and it won the Grand Jury Prize at Sundance, I think in in 2010 and was a pretty well-reviewed kind of popular documentary and but it's kind of astounding that like I remember watching it 
and liking it and thinking that it was kind of this crazy story. But watching it in 2020, it hits so different because basically so many of the ideas that are explored in this documentary have basically come like chillingly true um, to to an almost maddening degree. Yeah, even more so than in the past. Yeah, things have... I mean, yeah, I think that we're seeing the the I mean I think that maybe the the political repercussions of like the sort of mediatized life that we all lead have really come to the fore since maybe 2016. Um mm-hmm. yeah, I guess maybe that is part of why it hits different. Um but and yeah, I def- think also the the thing that uh it, it's it's also a funny companion piece to that Netflix documentary The Social Dilemma which I think I watched about a week and a half ago that I know I a lot of people are talking it. about right now. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it, it's good, though I feel like all of the engineers and tech executives who are the subjects in it who seem very um, genuinely and earnestly worried about the sort of social media infrastructure that they helped create, they're still kind of stuck in the matrix a little bit. And they kind of don't, they're like not paranoid enough for all of their misgivings about how the technology they built was used to kind of... Um, like psychologically traumatize and distort kind of every aspect of our society, they're still kind of just like, what if we had a nonprofit that was, you know, uh, truth telling and like, like basically like, like if we founded a don't be evil foundation and like we taught tech CEOs to not be psychopaths, but I think they miss that perhaps this was like a nefarious psychopathic project from the very beginning and they're still buying into certain lies. And the subject of We Live in Public, Josh Harris, who was an early inter- internet entrepreneur based out of New York in the 1990s, uh, has no such illusions about like the essential goodness of technology and the internet and social media. Even before it basically existed, he was already predicting that it would be used to uh, erase privacy and individuality and psychologically enslave us. Yes. Um, I think, you know, he definitely had some level of excitement. Uh, he's an unusual figure. I don't know if I would necessarily say he certainly doesn't have any illusions about it, but I also wouldn't say that, uh, he has a balanced view of it either. Definitely um, not. Yeah. He, he's, it's not rooted in a kind of pro humanist, uh, no. perspective. <laughs> it's like he's simultaneously warning you about it. But almost in, I mean, broadly defined, a kind of Crowleyan sense, like he's telling you about what's going to happen before it happens. And then if you don't do anything about it, you're de facto consenting to it happening. Yeah. And, And that was a point that he was saying was that people are going to demand this technology. It's not going to be imposed on them like in Orwell's 1984 or even in Brave New World where there was maybe... And a kind of undercurrent of like quote totalitarianism kind of imposing this on people, but that it would base, I mean, it, it does hark back to the central idea of, you know, MK ultra associate Aldous Huxley that basically um, people are going to demand their own enslavement. Yeah. And like, and, and sort of love it. I mean, they probably won't really love it because 
it's sort of rooted in trauma and manipulation, but they are going to demand it nonetheless. And I think we can see that like literally everywhere we look around today. Yeah, he definitely doesn't have something that I was just listening to before we got on was this talk he gave at Startup Fest uh, in 2017, which I think he was maybe invited to do as a result of his sort of fame as like a tech prophet uh, resulting from the documentary, which maybe created a a new renaissance for him. Um, And he was like saying like, you know, we human beings, we're just like wet. Uh, CPUs, you know, like uh, eventually the computers, the same way you're frustrated when you're talking to the computer, you know, like uh, on a helpline, eventually they're going to be frustrated with you. And he was saying that in, you know, his prediction was 2024, we're going to realize that we're on the chicken factory, you know, we're, we're in the factory farm, uh, we're, you know, and the door's about to slam right on our asses or whatever. Um, And we'll have like a moment when we can maybe get out of being imprisoned by machines but uh yeah what's interesting though is like for all of his kind of prophetic genius he never sort of dedicates his energies to sort of like you know fighting against this machine if anything his experimental projects have been almost like beta tests for how to more deeply manipulate people and bring about this very thing he's warning about. So he seems to desire it. Uh, He seems to want to be uh, like virtual uh, or to be like exist virtually. I think that he's uncomfortable with human existence. Um, deeply uncomfortable i think which you know like yeah like uh you could pathologize him as being some sort of exceptional being but it's not an exceptional real way of thinking like he's definitely eccentric and he stands out as being an unusual individual another thing about him that we'll talk about more in depth later is obsession with shit um but like uh that i picked up on is his like fixation with with poop and like feces and like going to the bathroom yeah, I don't know. Oh, like yeah, that. I mean, like the part of his whole surveillance scheme in both uh, quiet and the putting cameras in, in the toilet. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Always. Which is just so. Who would think of that? I mean, yeah. even if you're trying to do a panopticon, like why go that far? Yeah, it definitely stands out. And in that talk I was mentioning, uh, he also was continually using uh, that as a point of reference. You know, the way that like when you go to the bathroom, like uh, a lot of the time it can detect like when you like in public toilets, you know, it can detect when you're done. So it flushes automatically like that type of thing. You know, uh-huh. he was using that as like a paradigm of automation. So he did. But so my point is that he's like a weird dude. But there are like a lot of people who are like tween demonists who are like, you know, oh, make yeah. me a cyborg. Like, uh <laughs> Yeah, yeah, and he he did, in one interview I saw, he kind of name-checked Ray Kurzweil, and uh, I think in a kind of favorable sense, but said that, you know, uh, the only thing wrong with Ray Kurzweil is that he's projecting too far out in the future. I think the singularity is going to come faster by 2024. But he's definitely still of that kind of techno-utopianist mind. He's just perhaps a little more honest with himself than virtually every other big celebrity tech figure that we're sort of used to. I mean... In a way, it, it it's kind of refreshing to hear him talk very cogently and prophetically about how, you know, basically the the role that big data plays in basically, you know, tech surveillance on these platforms and how, you know, everything is free except for the footage of you that we own. And was saying this in 1999, you know, so um, but but, you know, uh, Tim Cook or Jack Dorsey or Mark Zuckerberg, they're not going to tell you that shit today. You know, they're they're not going to they're not going to, you know, they're playing a role that, you know, as Josh Harris says, all the world's a stage. So, Mm -hmm. you know, they're playing this kind of benevolent part. But 
in a way, Josh Harris is like this merry prankster Silicon Valley brat that is always like saying the quiet part out loud. Yeah. Um, and he, do, so do, do we want to real quick just kind of give like a really basic overview of like what we live in public is and yeah, we should the subject matter of it so people kind of know what we're talking about. We should talk about his oeuvre and like his life and yeah, the, the, what the documentary kind of chronicles. Um, yeah, yeah. So just really briefly, like the, like the total spark notes of Josh Harris is, like I said, he was born around 1960, grew up in Ventura, California, um, and got into the dot-com world at a relatively young age, I think around the time he was in college. Um, and this was like the early 80s, like way before you know, the internet had started to go public, but he eventually started a company called Jupiter Communications, which was sort of a, a tech consulting company that would, you know, get hired by companies to basically teach them how to hook up to the internet and integrate it into their business and ended up making like a, a good chunk of money off of that. And uh, this is all when he had moved to New York City in the 1980s. And eventually going into the 90s, he founded a really interesting project, I think you could fairly say, that was probably the first thing that was uh, prophetic in the sort of internet media sense, which was a sort of web TV network called Pseudo, or Pseudo.TV. And I think he founded this in like 1994 or 95, um, you know, before people even got AOL. I mean, before the kind of mass adoption of going online even started, and this is firmly like in the 56, 56K era, and he pioneered a lot of things, which the documentary goes through of basically, um, you know, this total web-based kind of not not dissimilar from, you know, any kind of TV networks website or YouTube today, where you'd have hosts on a web, on a live webcam, and then you would have a chat room where viewers could interact live with the guests, and it was that was kind of a mind blowing idea at the time that you could have this kind of interactive television over the internet. But of course, yeah. it was not very um, efficient because the infrastructure of the internet was not there yet to be able to stream video in a kind of smooth and reliable fashion. But it was uh, it was very very countercultural, kind of really nestled into like the Silicon Alley um, kind of tech and art scene in downtown Manhattan in the 90s. And of course, mm -hmm. that was a very, in some ways, was more over the top than the 80s in New York, where you just had all this like Wall Street money flowing around everywhere and all these artists and celebrities yeah. and musicians and, he would and throw, stuff. He would throw like crazy parties, you know, stuff like uh, trying to invite mm -hmm. people from all the different like uh, art subcultures and tech subcultures in New York in the 90s, you know, to kind of cultivate new talent for the shows he was trying to create with Pseudo. Um, it seems like after a point, like, they were able to create something kind of watchable, and it was really the earliest. Like, streaming video is, like, such a huge thing now. I know, And it was I really, know. he was really a pioneer in that. Mm-hmm. Like, uh, like, the idea of Like, one of the earliest, TV. along with, uh, with the, the people that we'll talk about um, next yeah. week, the Digital Entertainment Network on the West Coast, but this was the East Coast variant, and it did, I think, come out first. So it really yeah. was a trailblazer and kind of interesting that it was this California boy. Um, oh, and did we did we forget to mention who is a uh, well, we'll get to it later. But his father was a career CIA operative named Ted Harris, 
who was absent for most of Josh Harris's uh, upbringing and died when he was 15. Um, so it's interesting, the son of a CIA officer from California goes out to New York and, you know, it, and kind of teaches these, you know, these, these artistes and um, avant-garde people, you know, this new technology and how to use it and integrate it with art. But yeah. like I said, we'll, we'll get back to Ted Harris in a little bit. But fast forwarding yeah. to the late 90s, he is throwing the, these big... Uh, Oh yeah, yeah. Go ahead. One of the interesting things that uh, from the documentary, uh, you know, he was, makes a very prescient comment saying like, "We're gonna put to a CBS reporter, uh, like during a sixty-minute segment, he says something like, we 'We're gonna put CBS out of business.'" Um, mm-hmm. And uh, you know, which is a very prescient remark. And then you know, he starts ranting and says something like, "We're in the business of programming people's lives," like you know, very like aggressively. Yeah. And the reporter's like, "Excuse me, that sounds very scary." You know, <laughs> but and yeah, this is definitely like a vibe that he. I mean, what he also. Say, I think right? he yeah. said in that same interview, in the same kind of rant paragraph of that, he said, "You know, we're gonna take you guys over. That's what my bankers are telling me to do." <laughs> Uh, which is kind of a funny comment just uh yeah i don't know uh even though he he didn't have that much money behind him at this point i mean the 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 i think uh he kind of backed away from jupiter communications but then it went public in the late 90s and he still had 15 percent of the shares so he basically became a multi-millionaire kind of overnight and had probably about 90 to 100 million dollars to play with and this is like at the height of like the crazy like pets.com like 1.0.com boom where anybody with like a vague website could get a bunch of venture capitalist money and like go crazy with it without showing how they're going to monetize it kind of an early form of what we saw in like this last decade with all these unicorn companies that like like we work and like uber that are like never profitable but like take over the entire yeah, like, so the, a whole sector of the economy, basically. The um, way that one dude kind of described in the documentary was that um, he, like, uh, we became millionaires because we knew how to hook up a modem. Like, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And they, they went from being kind of these outsider nerds, and Josh Harris was kind of this, like, socially awkward, geeky, maybe, I don't know, maybe on the spectrum a little bit. Um, I wouldn't rule it out. Um, and he, in one of the uh, documentaries that you sent me, he, uh, like, invited that kind of speculation. Uh, you know, he was quizzing people, like, uh, in a sort of a follow-up documentary from the filmmaker, a short follow-up documentary uh, by the filmmaker of we live in public he was you know he had taken up boxing we'll get into that mm-hmm. later on but he asked someone like you know do you think that i'm like retarded uh have asperger's or am i autistic like yeah. you know, direct quote not to use the r slur just sure you know, not sure. quoting him uh yeah so yeah yeah um and uh let's see he also oh i think it also like it bears mentioning really quickly that in i think 1992 he started experimenting with video art and he made a cgi music video using very kind of early you know you know motion graphics and stuff that was it was called launder my head and it, it appears in the we live in public documentary and it's like a very early 90s like ms dos era kind of you know, uh, like cyberspace animation of these fi- humanoid figurines with TV set heads that are dancing around in unison and have lyrics like "Come form with us, conform with us." Yeah, it's a very creepy video. It's very, it has a very Max Headroom type of vibe. I don't know if it was before or after that, but it definitely has that kind of like 
early CGI dystopian vibe. Yeah, yeah, and kind of MK Ultra kind of vibe. Yeah, of, it's very, very creepy. Like it's, it's trying like, to hypnotize you or something. Yeah, it's like these people with TV heads, and they're all like dancing in a very, yeah, very like sort of hypnotic, robotic way. Like conform, yeah, launder my like very, yeah, launder my head. Um, <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, uh, and then another quote like, "We're your conscience. We uh, are not conscious. Launder uh, my head." And um, we'll probably put it in an interlude. It's it's yeah. a pretty creepy song. An interesting but... thing about Jaws Harris that definitely is a through line in the documentary that, uh, you know, I think is a very telling of his personality is that he is obsessed with Gilligan's Island. Oh, yeah. Uh, yeah. Like, super fixated with it. I mean, it was interesting. It was an interesting part of the documentary uh, seeing him kind of talk about his childhood and how he felt that he was in many ways, like, raised by the television. Um, because I think that that's an experience that people who are like of our generation can relate to like even more fiercely, like the Mm -hmm. idea I remember, like I thought of as I was watching that being in high school, I was in a, like a social science research class. And there was this one kid in the class uh, who went by like invader Tim. Uh, and, uh, (laughs) he actually, you know, to his credit, you know, people, uh, the teacher was kind of talking about the influence of parents, you know, and shaping children's values and things like that. And invader Tim, like to his credit, you know, uh, said something like, I think that, that I don't, he didn't say in his words, but he said like that paradigm's kind of outdated. Like a lot of, uh, kids these days are more influenced by things like TV, like I am by Invader Zim. And that's why mm-hmm. I act like him all the time, you know? <laughs> so, uh, but you know, that's obviously something that like definitely has some, some merit to it. And yeah, he was like profoundly influenced by like the idea of, Gilligan's Island's like uh, being on a ship is something that like you know the whole notion of the island, his prescience of reality TV, like the like boating off the island, the sort of idiom survivor, like that mm-hmm. stuff really kind of carries through. And yeah, uh, yeah. And he said that yeah, he basically gives us kind of his public origin story that yeah, because his dad was away overseas so much on CIA business, and his mom was like an overstressed uh, social worker. And uh, and he had he was the youngest of like, I think, four or five siblings that basically he was sort of he was like one of these first latchkey kids. And I guess it's something you actually hear a lot of boomer artists, even going back to like George Lucas and kind of like his not great relations with his dad and watching Flash Gordon as a kid and like getting lost in that world. Like the boomers were the first generation to have a TV box in their home. And then I think you saw an acceleration of that where I think that was a very common theme, like Gen Xers, this idea of kind of like being left to their own devices and being raised by the TV. And of course it's only accelerated since then with every preceding generation. Now you just added, you know, video games and the internet and then smartphones and YouTube. Yeah. It's like a public health crisis, almost like people's ideological formation on YouTube because the algorithm like programs them to be like a political extremist or whatever. Like, yeah. Yeah. Know. So it's, it's um, kind of, I, I think in some ways, uh, I think at one point Josh Harris describes like Gilgan's Island as kind of like low tech sort of, uh, I don't know if he calls it brainwashing, but kind of calls it like the very first iteration of shaping people. Oh yeah. He does. He makes a point in, um, in a book um, that was written, I think it just came out a year or two ago, which I, I got to flip through a little bit. I'll mention it in a second when I can 
find what it is. Uh, but he talks about how the structure of commercials on television in that era created a kind of dissociation from getting fully invested in the narratives. And so television could always be a little bit like it, it fell short of like fully engrossing you because you just instinctively learn like it conditioned you to know that no matter if there was like the most dramatic thing ever was going on in this tv show that it was going to cut away at a moment of high tension and that he almost described it in almost kind of like skinnerian or pavlovian kind of way that it like trains you to be like emotionally distanced from dramatic events even if you're you know uh you know that term like cathexis like even if you're forming like a strong cathexis with like the tv box um it bumps you out of it and then fills that the the interruption with uh ads for commodities and then that's interesting yeah like he was really doing he's done a lot of deep thinking on things like gilligan's island and like yeah. his own way he was raised and well, i uh, remember like my mom at least would use gilligan's island as like kind of shorthand for like dumb television you know i get like i think maybe a lot of people saw gilligan's island as like you know the epitome of like people who were you know watching it while it was on the air like the epitome of like dumb tv but it's also in some ways interesting because it is like this sort of paradigm of i mean it's the classic sort of philosophical fable of like hey bin yakzan like robinson crusoe like the mm -hmm. idea of the deserted islands there and sort of the yeah it does have this kind of uh paradigm of virtuality kind of embedded in it um and yeah it, you know the rules of reality don't necessarily apply on gilligan's island you know like uh, there's magic yeah. there's sort of these strange things uh, there's lots of like clowning there's you know it's a it's a paradigm of, of theater in a way. Uh, and that's another interesting thing about Josh Harris is that he's kind of very like theater person too. Like he's not just like mm -hmm. a tech guy. Well, it kind of happens later on that he does this sort of pivot, but uh, in emphasis at least, but uh, I think there's always yeah. something kind of performative. And uh, even though he, I mean, he sort of described himself as an artist, especially after the, the tech bust in like 2001, but he, you know, going from his obsession with Gilligan's Island as a child and then founding Pseudo and then, of course, like leading up to what he would become best known for um, is, you know, this art project in 1999. It, it has, you know, it's very and his dressing up as Lovey the Clown. Yeah. And the all name these of things. The company being Pseudo. He would later sort of yeah. claim that the whole company was just one big art project. Yeah, which the name did. kind of does in some way almost suggest but yeah the, it is an interesting name yeah and that's that's a really interesting anecdote and he hasn't he doesn't seem to have abandoned that persona uh because i definitely watched a talk by him that was like from 2013 or 2014 uh and he was still referencing lovey but that was like a thing where uh kind of towards the end of his time as sort of this like whiz kid at pseudo he started to adopt this persona of lovey the clown who was like a very we've talked about like the the nature of clowns or clowns mm -hmm. as sort of emblematic as of our era and the sort of uh you know liminal quality of not only clowning and masquerade in general but of especially the sinister dimension of clowns and certainly mm -hmm. this is like a scary clown like uh very scary but, clown yeah in the documentary it says that uh or people caught remarks that he you know seemed he was perplexed that people found it frightening because he wanted it to be sort of amusing and and funny but uh yeah he it was like a, a disturbing clown and apparently he would start 
going to like board meetings and stuff in this clown persona where he would just be like, I'm Luffy. Like, you know, and like, yeah. Stop talking in full sentences. Yeah. And that talk, he, uh, you know, where he does that boy thing and says that he's Luffy. He calls Lovey his virtual self. Yeah, which is, like which is again, you yeah. know, in, in a bizarre way, like very prophetic because now people go on social media and they create virtual versions of themselves. Yeah, they create avatars and everybody's a clown in a way. Yeah. You know, everybody's I mean, masquerading. Something that I think is similar to Lovey is like Jomney's son. Like, I'm an oh, yeah. ale bean. Like, you know, the <laughs> real dude that's like Jomney's son is, like, not, I assume, like that. But he's got, like, a ton of, like, fans and, like, published a book, like, about, like, I'm an ale bean, you well, know? Didn't so. he didn't he come out of the same, like, alt-lit milieu that in New York City and Brooklyn that, like, Tao Lin and, like, Steve Rogenbuck and all those people I don't people really know, kind of but I guess that of. would make sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like, it's a very different like, vibe than Tao Lin. Tao Lin is, like, you know... I mean, I guess I'm not going to say that the, the ALB and stuff isn't, like, kind of date-rapey and weird, but a little bit less uh, dark, maybe, than Tao Lin. Uh, yeah. On the surface. Yeah. I don't know. But, yeah. but they, they emerged kind of in the aftermath of the same stew of this, like, art scene that I think would go on to kind of get parts of it would get repurposed and commodified and turn into like vice culture Mm. like there's a lot of um and we saw some of the people involved with the we live in public project would go on to be like edgy photographers for vice come form with me conform with me come form with me conform with me launder my head You turn me on. You make me live. You turn me on. You make me live. Launder my head. Launder my head. Launder, 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 launder my head. I am your conscience. I am not conscious. I am your conscience. I am not conscious. Launder my head. Launder my head. Launder, 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 launder my head. We are here to tell you. How we tell you how to live. How we tell how to live. How we tell you how to live. Launder my head. Launder my head. Let's get into just real quick, like the 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 project that is the centerpiece of this documentary is basically this um, this immersive art project that was launched in December 1999. That was called Quiet. We live in public and was promoted you know conceived of and promoted by josh harris as this like extremely ambitious art party experiment kind of you know uh, just this crazy thing and basically what it was is that he built out he bought a building uh in down on broadway in like downtown manhattan and he like gutted three floors of it and he installed these sort of Japanese-style hotel sleeping pods and invited a bunch of artists and some people that had worked for Pseudo and other you know, big names in the Manhattan art scene at the time to build various installations. Like, they built a kind of temple. They built a kind of cafeteria. 
And the idea was they invited 60 people. A lot of them were like European artists who had been reached out to, uh, to basically live for, I think, at, at least two weeks, but kind of for an indeterminate period in this underground place where they would, they'd be allowed to leave, but like you couldn't leave and come back. So basically you were kind of in it and, and stuck in this, uh, it's very Gilligan's Island kind of place. But the real kicker yeah. is that he wired the entire place with CCTV cameras. And so every pod had a camera and a TV monitor and like a remote. And every pod, you know, little TV station could was both be could be watched by everybody and you could flip through the channels to see what was going on in everybody else's pod, in all of the main rooms, and even in, like, the bathrooms. You know, like we said, he even put cameras in the toilet bowls. In the toilets. Uh, There was, like, a clear shower. Like, literally, he annihilated people's privacy completely. Yeah. Uh, Like, everyone ate. It was kind of, like, a weird... Like, everything was free. You know, there was free dinner, like, the cereal bar, like, an alcohol bar, drugs, like, whatever you could want. Mm -hmm. It was sort of, like, this weird Brave New World-type utopia. There was even, like, a Church of the Millennium where apparently he would give sermons. I really wish I could see a little bit more of the content of those sermons. You see him give, like, kind of a little bit of one of them uh in the documentary but yeah that's uh, as much as, yeah as and there was another there was a kind of a holy shrine that one artist built and i wasn't able to look in kind of like the persuasion of it but i think it was kind of pan you know pan mystical religious esoteric whatever but like nobody was allowed to go in yeah and so. another <laughs> weird thing about it is that like in addition to like there being cameras like in the shower like in the toilets there was like a huge arsenal and a gun range. Oh yeah, like a, yeah, yeah, like, uh, yeah. A it, very w- yeah, a very sketchy artist named Alfredo Martinez, who we'll, we'll probably dig into uh, in a minute, uh, set up this huge gun range, and I guess was able to get a film permit um, and kind of like work the system a little bit to basically say we're filming a movie down here, and it was full of like automatic weapons, like Uzis. Yeah. AK-47s and and a huge arsenal like and this bear like you know this kind of factors into the dissolution of the whole thing like later on but this is like on the cusp of the year 2000 when like you know everyone's kind of expecting Y2K so there was kind of like this underground bunker like armed to the teeth like feel it was very very weird like sort of Heaven's Gate vibe yeah Yeah, Doomsday and of course Heaven's Gate had happened just a year or two prior so people were kind of on the lookout and especially yeah the convergence of like y2k panic um yeah. kind of created this very sort of spooky dynamic and of course yeah. situated right next to the gun range were interrogation rooms yeah. because not only did you know they have people come apply to this thing they they asked them to give over like tons of personal information and honestly sounded like Scientology auditing where, you know, you had to give your social security number, like all of your personal information. And then they'd ask you like these personality questionnaires about, you know, um, you know, have you ever been a drug addict? Have you ever been sexually abused? Like, have you ever attempted to commit suicide and, and you have ever been arrested? And then they had this kind of like secret police, like the, the artists and volunteers, you know, wore these like fascist like Gestapo uniforms 
Yeah, um, everyone had to wear like a monochrome uniform, like a weird outfit. Like who was? Yeah, it was kind of an orange and silver kind of space age jumpsuit that everyone yeah. was assigned, and so everybody could only wear that. But then you had this like secret police component, where which was kind of the other aspect of th- this experiment, which was that he was going to obliterate everybody's privacy. And then use a kind of he. I think he described it as a kind of like Stasi Gestapo um, kind of totalitarian police state apparatus that was not only going to like maintain order, but like pull people in periodically for psychologically harrowing interrogations. Yeah, and definitely that was part of the point. Like he want like you know his whole thing is like the internet's going to destroy people's privacy. You know it's going to put us on a chicken farm. And this is like this twisted, sadistic, like realization, like, you know, uh, very like sadistic realization of that future. Like uh, one of the, the really uh, gripping or upsetting parts of the documentary is uh, from the interrogation chamber. You know, this woman is asked if she ever attempted suicide and she replies yes. And it's like, how did you do it? So she tried slitting her wrists. And then they're like, uh, model for us the speed that the razor traveled across your skin or something like that. And she has yeah. to like reenact it's and she's like and crying. Like, it's really yeah. disturbing. It honestly is like that's disturbing. It's awful. Like why and, and and the guy who was doing that, um, just to mention was a quote in the documentary, which I think the documentary does a great job of capturing all of this, but I think it's still kind of like social dilemma. Like the 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 filmmaker was friends with all these people, so it was like a little bit kind of there's credulous a lot about more them. I wanted to see. Like it start, it becomes yeah. like very frenetic and like unclear once things start going to hell in the uh, underground bunker. Yeah, know, like, but uh, but the, this guy who is running the interrogations is a uh, Iranian uh, German national named Ashkan Sahihi, who's a very like cool artist. Um, and he's billed in the movie like his little lower third is quote interrogation artist, which is just hilarious. Like, like yeah. there, there was another one where it was like, uh, yeah, like like torture artist like there's another guy it was like a torture art it's like what what the fuck does yeah, that mean there was like, a very you know? weird like hodgepodge of people in this like uh w- one of the weirdest like people involved that i saw in the documentary was an 11 year old child oh, who was God, just like yeah. uh i didn't know i was gonna have to live here but i knew i was gonna get to shoot guns and it's like is this someone's kid or did he was he just like let in here but like so there was all sorts of like you know uh like eclectic people uh, but there are also like you know there was a director of PS One MoMA like was also oh, there like you know I have like, to there say must like, be a pod for me like oh, you know like, I, I have to say she was one of the most insufferable people in the entire yeah, documentary because well, like, this she's, is the place to be you know like oh, uh, yes, no, yes, what oh. do you mean the pods are full like no 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 there's a pod for me yeah that's like, Alana you know, like, Heiss uh, uh, who is just yes oh and I I started referring to Mr Oz Mr Oz where are yeah, you which yeah, I think is funny that she called him Mr Oz given everything we've said about Oz and Crowley yeah and stuff. Uh, but well, she's yeah, just so cause... delighted to be a part of this thing that is happening. Yeah, exactly. And it, like, has no, like, I think that's very, uh, of, like, yeah, the like, there was pretty much world. a rape, like, on camera. Like, oh, it, God, yeah. You know, like, uh, in the documentary, like, there's some dude taking a shower in the clear shower, and he starts, like, just yelling, like, oh, Cynthia, like, come to me, Cynthia. And he just grabs this woman, and pretty much, like, there's no 
it's pretty much continuous footage. There's no indicate like she doesn't say, like you know give enthusiastic consent at all. No. And he's like pulling her and dragging her into the shower, and she seems to be struggling to get away from him. And everyone else is just like gawking and like watching. Josh Harris is sitting dude. there with like his New Year's hat on, like chomping on a cigar, just like boredly watching this happen. Yeah. And doing nothing. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Which actually, so. well, we, we can get to uh, in a sec that actually the whole... So, okay, so just the, the timeline of this thing. So he launches this thing with about 60 people, and it ends up going on, I think, for about three weeks. And basically, uh, it reaches its apotheosis on New Year's Eve, Y2K, and then I believe in the early morning hours of January 1st, yeah. The NYPD riot squads show up and bust down the door and like aggressively kick everybody out. And then it's just like over. All these people in jumpsuits are just like out on the street. They have no. And Josh Harris is just like, get the fuck out. Like, <laughs> just like yeah, kicking he, everybody out. The way the documentary says it is basically that the police had believed that it was some kind of doomsday cult. And then when they came in, they see like this altar and like this church and like all these guns. And they're like, well, like this checks out. Like, you know, so. So uh, we're breaking this up. And yeah. Uh, yeah. And they say that Josh Harris, like basically at that point, had satisfied himself of his hypothesis that if you do this, everyone's going to go insane. Uh, so then he didn't actually care about continuing it or preserving it at all. And just yeah, like, oh, you know. actually, I found something in another article, which uh, I'm sure we'll, we'll put in our our show notes uh, when we post those. But. Uh, I I'd actually the the documentary doesn't go into this at all, but it makes a lot of sense. And I'll just quote here that lost from official accounts of quiet is the detail that Josh had recruited subjects on a promise of hundred thousand dollars for anyone who could survive to the end of New Year's Day, That's meaning any or all of 60 struggling and somewhat desperate artists, including a generous number of performance artists for whom shamelessness and immunity to attrition were not just matters of pride. They were job descriptions. So mm. basically, yeah, like he offered, and th that's a, I mean, when you're talking about this as an experiment, that's an important detail to leave out. Oh, like, yeah. Because it I makes think sense, like, why people, like, uh, actually, the Momo lady, I remember uh, when, like, later on he called her up trying to promote some project he was doing a afterwards. You know, yeah. she was like, it's you, Mr. Oz. Like, are you here to give me a lot of money? Like, it explains why she would expect <laughs> oh, to be yeah. given a lot of money. I yeah. thought she was just being an arrogant kind of artist. Yeah, like, exactly. Like, elite artist but, who... No, maybe was... she actually was like, you owe me, like, $100,000. Like, that's what yeah. every bougie artist in New York does when, like, a billionaire calls them. Like, ooh, yeah, are you exactly. here to give me money? <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, but um, no, that makes a lot more sense. Like, maybe she was waiting for her $100,000 to yeah. come in. And, of course, that would have been, like, $6 million bucks. And I think he said that he spent any uh, spent like maybe 20 million dollars on this whole project mm -hmm. and th they describe like him walking around in like a just sort of like a, a, a delirious rage just like with wads of hundred dollar bills just like if someone would come up with the most harebrained idea for like an installation he would just like like peel off like five thousand dollars and just be like go do it you know, and and was pissing out money left and right. And uh, some artists thought that this was sort of probably set up to be like a tax loss scheme. You know, mm -hmm. like he was writing off the whole thing as a loss. So you don't have to pay taxes. But um, but one of these articles does go into more detail that like he became incredibly frantic in the last few days that he had made this promise to everybody 
but nobody had dropped out. Like everybody was like hanging in there, even though it was spinning into kind of darkness and chaos. Like, I mean, it's like when you put it that way, it is kind of like going on like Fear Factor or like Survivor or one of these kind of like challenging reality game shows where you know it's going to be abusive and fucked up. But if you survive, you get 100 grand. So like, Mm -hmm. why not just roll with it? And so he tried a number of things. Like he put a couple in the store display window of the building that was facing the public and had a woman give a guy fellatio and thought that, like, the Vice Squad would come in and shut him down. Um, they tried, like, putting an art exhibit at City Hall, which had, like, it had like girls XXX and, like, neon, and they, like, put it outside of City Hall to, like, protest Rudy Giuliani's... Uh, you know, cleanup of Times Square. Uh, they they call, they invited a bunch of city officials there to play Risk, which is kind of a funny thing. That is weird. And then they planned on somebody to like run up and like kind of accost one of them physically to like scare these guys. And I guess it just like didn't have the desired effect. So it was like he was trying all this shit to get busted so that he could have an out. And then finally on New Year's Eve, I forget exactly what he did. He might have actually like called into the NYPD and said like, there's a doomsday call here. They're all going to kill themselves. There was even that detail where he said like, you know, I've been dodging them, you know, for a while. In the documentary, there was even that part where he said something to that effect. Like, I I know like how they operate and they won't bust me before my time. Yeah, I'm confident Giuliani won't bust me before my time. Um, and, uh, yeah, what, my what time being, yeah. like, when I technically get out of, like, my contract or whatever, where, like, I don't have to pay any of this money. Wow. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 And, and you know, he, like, he's one of these guys that often alludes to having kind of, like, inside connection. I mean, he's very theatrical in that way, where he likes to kind of play up how powerful he is or who he's kind of in the mix yeah. with, um, especially at that time. So, you know, he... Uh, he and and I guess through that he kind of got away with it and uh, didn't have to pay anybody. Yeah, but he went off and did a yeah he did a Gilligan's Island thing on a boat like for a little while afterwards and then he did his his new thing which was basically like to Truman show himself and do the same thing like to himself in his own apartment with his girlfriend. Yeah, with Tanya Corin who was a TV host on Pseudo. And yeah. So you know they were friends for a while and then they. They fell into a relationship somewhere around like the time of of quiet, and then they he decided to yeah like literally do it to himself. So he rigged his entire loft with surveillance cameras, including in the toilet, because yeah, like we said, he, he right. has this kind of a scatological fascination. Mm-hmm. And they basically launched a website, which I think was called We Live in Public officially mm-hmm. whereas the the other project was quiet we live in public so this is just we live in public and started a kind of webcam website that was uh had the same concept that the pseudo they pioneered at pseudo where uh there was a chat room and the webcams that i think were like sensor activated so you could see where they were at all times and they did that for a few months and i think at first they thought it was cool and I mean, this is very similar to like YouTube stars or like YouTube yeah. channels today, yeah, right? It's like or a like hyper version of yeah, being a YouTuber and like getting involved in some drama. Like you know, basically their relationship eventually like sour. There is a scene in the documentary where he basically 
like grabs her like in a, like trying to get sex like in a uh, like you know a not acceptable manner <laughs> like uh you know she's oh, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. like stop yeah. hurting me you know and uh yeah and it's like really rough and it's all like on camera and like it's the whole all dark room, like you know yeah and he of course he felt like he was being persecuted by the fans because they were going over to her side after he mm-hmm. like you know attacked her on camera yeah um but yeah and he basically like she left he started to spiral downwards like uh there's this one really eerie scene where he's just like muttering to himself in the mirror like it's what all gonna come s- out yeah it's, it's all, all gonna come like out that. sooner or later it's all yeah. gonna come out sooner or later <laughs> yeah yeah uh and so many of the eerie scenes like of these you know meltdowns or these fights that he's having with his girlfriend are against the backdrop of this massive like andy warhol-esque gilligan uh painting uh <laughs> that he has like uh yeah and people actually had compared him to andy warhol saying like oh he's doing sure. the factory or whatever you know like uh the kind warhol of, yeah. of web tv you know yeah so uh the, everyone yeah. definitely thought of themselves everyone was participating in this whole milieu definitely saw themselves as kind of the 90s version of warhol's whole scene yeah um and also the the we live in public webcam project happened against the backdrop of the massive dot-com crash of 2000 yeah Yeah, and basically lost everything most of his money basically and so everybody was like watching him on the webcam with zero privacy day by day as like his like lawyers and financial managers were like calling him and telling him that like all of his you know all the stocks were worthless and just like really, really, yeah, bad vibes all around. And uh, eventually, Tanya Corin like left after a few months because uh, their relationship, yeah. yeah, like like spiraled downward. And he eventually, I think, pulled the plug on it and went up to upstate New York to buy an apple orchard. Yeah, basically. Well, his, again, he always like retroactively like casts everything that he's done as somehow like I meant to do that where like pseudo was just an art project and my relationship with Tanya wasn't real. You know, she was yeah. my Truman show fake girlfriend. You know, yeah. we, I've never really been in love. So yeah, then she went, then he went to go to the apple farm. Um, and yeah, uh, one of the big points a documentary makes is that he like cut off all contact with his family and just sent his mom, like when she was on her deathbed, this like very callous video from the apple farm. And, uh, I remember uh, the quote from the documentary where, you know, he's talking about uh, how he's cut everyone off and, like, you know, they can't uh, have me or whatever. He says, like, how about them apples, you know, having, like, this (laughs) sort of, like, clownish persona. Like, you can tell he still, like, loves the camera. He, like, you know, even though he's doing this sort of monkish, like, I'm in isolation. It's interesting because it's almost like a stereotype in a way where he's, like, doing this radical unplugging thing. And after that, you know, uh, he goes to Ethiopia, which kind of ties back in with his dad. But, like, yeah, it's the same thing where it's like, oh, this is pure humanity. You know, I'm unplugged. Uh, There's, like, this one very eerie quote that he says, which is, like, um, you know, uh, I'm, like, seasoning myself by, you know, doing all these travels. And, you know, and he says, like, if you eat me, like, you know, I don't just want to be a Big Mac or whatever where I'm just, you know, consuming the Internet and TV. You know, if you eat me, it's going to be a memorable meal. And it's, like, this whole thing of, like, He says I'm well-spiced. Yeah, the human chicken factory, like, all this stuff. It's all very, like, but at the same time, like, these, like, themes, again, there's sort of a prescience to 
the way that he talks about them. So yeah, yeah, yeah. And and just to like read uh, a couple of quotes that he says in the documentary and in various interviews around the time uh, to drive home like how accurate he was in this whole experiment. He basically said about quiet we live in public this will be the most important millennial experience in the most important city in the world the 1984 worldview is in the works 2000 is a nice marker before big brother and after big brother man is the evolutionary king of the jungle but there's something else happening you can call it the machine age you can call it the next coming of christ mankind is going to be marginalized you know he also says that uh war hall is wrong everybody wanted 15 minutes of fame in their life he said our view is that people want 15 minutes of fame every day Condition the citizens will be conditioned not just to tolerate surveillance in the future, they will expect and even demand it. And he said about quiet, he saw the significance of the fact that, quote, they could stimulate the lab rats in two directions, with Podwellians being watched, but also able to watch each other, implying the question, will this lead to self-policing or anarchy? He also said the cogito ergo sum of the 21st century is, I am watched, therefore I am. A European writer demanded of him once, whatever happened to nonconformity? He grinned. It went out in the 60s. The next century is about complete conformity. We're in the business of programming people's lives. At first, everybody's going to like it like when the radio came when the television came this new human experience but as time goes by you'll find yourself in these more constrained virtual boxes the nature of the net is that people want their fame on a day-to-day basis rather than in their lifetime one day we're all going to wake up and realize that we're just servants what we're really trying to do is figure out how to reweave human relations so yeah you know i mean those are all pretty damn accurate yes I would say. And that was, you know, that was before that was five years before Facebook. I think didn't he even say at at a point in nineteen ninety nine that like in five years from now he did say at some point something basically that like everybody's going to join a social media thing in like five years and connect to each other and it was like exactly five years before Facebook. Very eerie. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. which of course is, you know, bankrolled by Peter Thiel and yeah all those other people it's interesting because on one hand like there's on one hand it's sort of these like you know uh standard kind of predictions about like social media and like interconnectivity but then he'll always slip in like these like you know humanity is going to be marginalized like one of the things i remember even from the documentary which was made you know came out in 2009 and most of the materials from even much earlier than that he said something like you know lions and tigers used to be kings of the jungle you know, which really isn't true. Like, neither of their habitat is the jungle, but I digress. Yeah. Like, you know, <laughs> proverbially, yeah. they're kings of the jungle. That's going to happen to humanity. You know, we're going to end up the same thing in, in zoos. You I know? fear so that like, we've fallen like, into the same trap Yeah, as like, lions and tigers. Yeah, we're no longer going to be the top of the food chain. This technology is going to be the top of the food chain. Uh, yeah, that's eerie and upsetting and scary uh so yeah like uh but again he just makes these sort of nihilistic pronouncements and i mean i guess i kind of can uh understand that especially from the point of view of someone like him who i don't think really values humanity as anything more than like a sophisticated computer Mm -hmm. um you know but like you know like if there's anything that can be done to really stop this but it is you know a uh, scary thought if he's correct um and he had shown a certain uh prescience uh, in the past yeah yeah and um and just to mention because i think you know when i watched it again in 2020 i knew a lot more about cia experimentation 
and the U.S. government doing kind of things, whether, you know, we've talked about the acid test parties at Stanford, which definitely have a resonance to Quiet We Live in Public, where, you know, you're testing out different types of audiovisual stimuli on people and trying to experiment with sort of new forms of social interaction and formation. And at the time, the technology they had at their disposal were psychedelic drugs like LSD. But I, I guess, I think at one point he did say in another interview something along the lines of like back in the 60s, you needed to give people psychedelic drugs. Like now you don't need to give them drugs because the internet is the drug. Yeah. And yes. it, it has a similar kind of psychological impact. Um, and it's worth mentioning like a couple of, one of the people I, I don't think I mentioned yet who it, it pops up in this documentary like very casually and it's kind of like, whoa, wait, like what is this guy doing here? Is a guy named Dr. Harold Kaufman yeah. whose lower third describes him as CIA psychiatrist who is like consulting, kind of advising Ashkan Sahihi and the other security services people on yeah. how to conduct like psychologically abusive interrogations and break people down. Yeah, I noticed that. That was very strange. Yeah, uh, and just kind of a uh, and his son uh, Nicholas Van Egton uh, also I think was a citizen of Quiet and participated. Nicholas Van Egton, okay. Yeah, yeah, son from his first marriage, and I I tried to look up this guy. It wasn't really easy to find a lot of information about this dude. I I did finally source like I found his obituary, and this guy Harold Kaufman, he died in 2010. He was born in 1932 in Elizabeth, New Jersey. He graduated from Harvard in 1954 and Harvard Law School in 57. Um, and after graduating then, he briefly practiced law before moving to Brussels, Belgium to study medicine. NATO, kind of sus. But jazz, uh, apparently, this obituary was in the vein of he was a very big jazz enthusiast. So jazz quickly took precedence over his medical studies. After becoming music director of the U.S. Pavilion at the 1958 Brussels World's Fair, another thing that the CIA had probably infiltrated, Dr. Kaufman moved on to Paris to play piano and jazz clubs. Returning to the United States, he toured with trumpeter Chet Baker in 1963 while attending medical school at the University of California at San Francisco. He graduated in 1964, did a residency in psychiatry in New York, and came to Washington in 1968 to work for the U.S. Public Health Service. Dr. Kaufman had a private practice for many years and had two stints as a staff psychiatrist at St. Elizabeth's Hospital before retiring in 2003. From 1969 to 1980, he taught law and psychiatry at Georgetown University's Law School. I think that's where the Podestas went. Consulted with the Justice Department and U.S. Attorney's Office, and this is interesting, traveled throughout Eastern Europe evaluating mental health needs. <laughs> um, okay, uh, this is just a normal CIA psychiatrist traveling around the Eastern Bloc evaluating mental health needs. Um, totally normal. But in 1972, yeah. he bought the Rogan Jar, uh, which was a 55-seat basement jazz club on N Street in uh, DuPont Circle in very hoity-toity uh, mover and shaker part of Washington, D.C. And, uh, yeah, and he would perform on Sundays at uh, Charlie's in Georgetown, um, the 701 restaurant, and at private parties. Summing up his life to the Washington Post in 1976, he said, quote, I'm an eclectic. He sure was. Uh, but it's interesting in that that article about him, you know, kind of eulogizing him as like a jazz enthusiast. Like they made no mention of the fact that he was in the CIA 
but this documentary somehow knows that he was in the CIA. And, you know, so I think you could read a lot of his resume items as undercover work that he was doing for the agency. Um, yeah. You know, his psychiatry or res- his medical residency in Belgium, the UCSF, working for the U.S. Public Health Service, uh, St. Elizabeth's Hospital. Yeah. I wonder if there and are MK stuff be, going on there. I wouldn't be surprised if, like, that were true of a couple of people who were involved in Quiet uh, slash the, you know, the bunker we live in public experiment. Like, I think Akshkan Sahihi is also mm-hmm. very... Uh, suspicious, especially like doing a woman of the IDF portrait series. Oh like, God, you know. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, like it's really a, I, it's hard to find a sort of better, uh, kind of sus, bougie, decadent art world figure than Ashkan Sahihi. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, just, just to mention a couple of his projects, you said the Women of the IDF portrait series, um, and then there was, like, a series called Kiss, where, like, it was just a close-up, like, a Polaroid close-up of him making out with, like, 25 different men and women. Um, probably the most notorious series that he did was called Come, which was a portrait series of people shortly after uh, they had been ejaculated on to their faces. You know, so brave and... I read a good, like, art world review, like, ripping this shit apart for, like, when he promoted it, being like, this is actually about the pervasiveness of pornography in our culture, and, like, it's meant to make people think. And it's just like, okay, this is, like, fucking It's ironic. Yes, ironic porn. Whoa, crazy, bro. Like, wow, it makes you think. And then, of course, but maybe his most notorious one was a photographic series called Camp X-Ray Guantanamo, which uh, is unavailable online, but I'm really curious as to how he got access to go to Guantanamo Bay and take a bunch of pictures. Yeah. Um, yeah, he also did a uh, hypnosis series and a uh-huh. drug series, which is like, well, I guess as an interrogation artist, those are two natural projects uh, to pursue. <laughs> Yeah, and he also did a uh, he did a, a a more mild kind of um, photo portrait book uh, called Die Berlinerin, which was uh, uh, basically a portrait of different Berliners. And actually, it's like if you look on his Wikipedia and on the Twitter of the U.S. consulate in Frankfurt, uh, there's a picture of him holding up the book with the U.S. ambassador uh, uh, Emerson and his wife, who is a portrait subject in the book, and they're hanging out at, like, the, the book launch was at the U.S. consulate in Frankfurt, basically. So this guy is, like, in in good with the U.S. government. I mean, uh, they just love this guy and his, like, his cum portraits. And <laughs> I'm an alligator. I'm a mama, papa coming for you. I'm the space Maximizing the space for the most amount of human beings crammed into one confined area. It's, it's very frightening and, and it sort of reminds me of um, slavery. What can I say? Speaking 
speaking of like sketchy Josh Harris like peripheral connections, like since uh, we live in public kind of ends in 2000, uh, it might be good or the quiet experiment kind of ends in 2000. It might be good to uh, mention now his like kind of weird tangential 9/11 link via that art collective oh, gelatin God. The, and the B thing. Yes. Yeah. The, um, this was kind of mind blowing because I I knew that this had happened, but maybe just the way I had read about it in previous articles, I thought that the, this was just sort of a strange uh, side episode in Josh Harris. But it actually ended up being kind of at least the way Josh Harris describes it later, like a formative event that precipitated kind of his downfall and his need to like go on the run from like. I don't know, shadowy forces in the U.S. government. Um, yeah. And it even connects to, in a way, it is very 9-11 is mass ritual-esque. Yeah. Well, what a, basically, like, there was an art collective that was renting a studio on, like, the 91st floor of the World Trade Center. I want to say the North Tower. Um, I think so. And, you know, anyway, the 91st floor... And basically, they were sharing the space with other artists, but they concealed what they were doing using, like, a cardboard edifice. And they basically removed a window from the World Trade Center, created, like, a sort of flimsy balcony, and went out and stood on it. And Joss Harris was actually involved with uh, filming this from, like, a helicopter. And there was some footage of it uh, that's pretty hard to find. Like, I wasn't actually able to track it down. It's kind of... There is maybe a book chronicling it but anyway yeah so it was this weird there is the, it doesn't really seem like very impressive as like an art piece i guess like you know uh sort of the uh adrenal aspect of it like the 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 dairy the daredevil uh thing is sort of a a form of art what people do with with tall buildings maybe but it seems like they just stood on this balcony uh while they were kind of filmed uh but yeah of course the 91st floor of the tower yeah, uh, and kind of a pivotal he, point in yeah, 11, he not you know? only yeah, he not only rented a helicopter to film it from the helicopter, but he also rented a suite in the Millennium Hilton Hotel, which as we discussed in the 9/11 episode was kind of modeled yeah, after huh. the 2001 obelisk and also kind of right. resembles like a smartphone, like mm -hmm. a Black Obsidian smartphone. So that's another into like he was observing this kind of artistic performance art ritual from the Millennium Tower. Uh, and then I can't remember if he was in the helicopter or in the hotel suite, but like, he paid for both. And um, and this happened in March 2000. So, uh, you know, like a year and a half before 9-11. And at the time, actually in August 2001, there was a uh, there was a New York Times article, Balcony Scene Unseen, atop World Trade Center, uh, episode atop World Trade Center assumes mythic qualities. Uh, yeah. From August 18th, uh, 2001, a, a mere three weeks before 9-11. And I think in that article, Josh Harris is basically bragging about his affiliation with this project, which, uh, by the way, was by the Austrian, uh, Vienna, Austria-based art collective named Gelatin. Mm -hmm. um, uh, originally spelled G-E-L-A-T-I-N, but then they, they switched their, the A to an I in the 2000s. But um, there were these Which four guys. Which is also weird. Gel, uh, ge uh, gel explosives. Um, Ooh. Uh, mm, but, C4. Uh, well, that, like, yeah. They were concerned because they sort of removed the window and, like, that was illegal, obviously. And yeah. they, I guess, were on, like, uh, art visas or student, or, like, work visas or something. And they were worried mm -hmm. about, about that. Um, 
And I think maybe actually one of them, no, I think that there was some drama that maybe one of them was deported, but he actually wasn't. Uh, I don't know. But yeah, like the whole thing of like, they're taking risks, like at that height, like, you know, suspending themselves, like they could fall. And then like a little while later, like all these people do fall to their deaths. And there's that famous photo, uh, impending death which is, like, of that part of the tower. It's bizarre. It's a it little is bit, bizarre. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, and, um, and yeah, so, like, the, it, as recently as, um, as, as August 2001, they were kind of alluding to this event and, like, being coy and, like, not quite saying whether or not it happened. And then the New York Times has this whole write-up, and Gelatin, which is, uh, which is Ali Jenka, who I think is, like, an Arab-Austrian, and uh, Florian Reiter, Tobias Urban, and Wolfgang Gantner, they they pulled off this stunt at, like, it, it, like I don't know, was it, was it, like, 3 in the morning or something like that, or 5 in the morning? Um, and they filmed it, and then 9-11 happens, and... Like, a month after the NY Times write-up, again, just to emphasize. Like, yeah, and yeah. <clears throat> according, to, according to Josh Harris, in later interviews that he gave like in 2011 and then in 2014 he's like really freaked out about this like this art thing also oh worth mentioning that um leo koenig who is uh, a german art dealer who at the time was in his early 20s but he was the son of a really big german art curator named gasper koenig and he had moved to New York, and he was actually one of the people that was involved in building installations and kind of helped build Quiet We Live in Public. And I think even had the – he bought his art gallery. Uh, he rented the building, the empty building next door to Quiet We Live in Public and was, like, pretty close with Josh Harris. Um, and at his gallery, he was planning an exhibition for what – gelatin called the b thing that was the name of this this world trade center stunt and the opening night of the exhibition was planned to be i shit you not september 11th 2001 (laughs) so i mean there was an uh, exhibition that day uh i I saw in one interview there was one article that said that the building was destroyed on 9-11 so they didn't have the exhibition but then another one said that they i think josh harris himself said that they did have the exhibition that night and people that were like in you know a little further north in downtown manhattan like some people did go to it because everyone was so like shell-shocked and like disassociated that they just like some people still showed up and it it was just like a surreal thing very weird very weird and he's even alluded to that uh in one artnet article from um that was written by anthony hayden guest who was also involved in quiet we live in public he talked to josh harris and um harris said to him very obliquely that gelatin and the beefing project were somehow involved in the 9-11 attacks but refused to give anthony hayden guest any more details about that um he also claimed that the fbi started coming after him after 9-11 because they were aware of this art project and they found the coincidences in it so suspicious that they started like coming around and harassing him and they were also mad because all of the film uh, that gelatin had taken of this they had speared they had left the country by then and they had gone back to europe so uh I, i guess josh harris had 
a secret film copy of maybe the helicopter ride somewhere that he had stashed away. But the FBI was very keen on getting any video or photo evidence of Gelatin's art project. And I guess they thought, in Josh Harris's words, that because one of the uh, one of the people in the art collective was of Arab descent, that there might be like something there. But it's just, uh, and then I guess Leo Koenig, because he was sort of sponsoring these guys and, and exhibitioning them uh, or exhibiting them, he basically it tells a very kind of different story um, that basically like, oh, obviously that had nothing to do with 9-11, but he's all, he is also oblique about it and like, maybe we don't want to uh, talk about this so much, so openly, you know? Like he, he kind of plays this kind of character of like mysterious art dealer guy but doesn't seem comfortable talking about it. Harris also recounts this bizarre story of how he came to sell his apple orchard. And Josh Harris put his farm up for sale in 2005, and a man named Robert Rosen, who he described as a former New York State Navy admiral. I don't know exactly what that means. Like, maybe is there a like a Navy National Guard or something? Wait, a farmer, a former New York State Navy Admiral? Is that... That's how he describes this this guy who offered to buy his Maybe apple he was orchard. from New York? I don't know. Uh... I, yeah, I, I don't really know. Um, but uh, And I haven't had time to look up Robert Rosen, but he was, I guess, a former Navy Admiral, offered to buy it. And uh, this article says that negotiations were painfully slow, so Harris flew off to Panama for a month to shoot a film. He says just before the gate closed on his flight out, a catatonic guy who looked like he'd taken too many Xanax sat down next to him. One month later, just before the gate closed on his flight back to the States, that same man sat down next to him, steadfast and sober. The day of the closing came. It's a public closing in New York State. Harris is there. His brokers are there. The title insurance rep, secretaries, and Harris's lawyer. Just as Rosen signs the paper, he looks up at Harris and says, wherever you go, whatever you do, we'll be watching you. Uh, and Harris says, there's only been two times in my life when my knees buckled. At that moment and the first time I joined the Mile High Club. Um, <laughs> He's also yeah. like just like one of those like pervert like you know like losers is constantly mentioning like me likey like set you know like aruga <laughs> like that's really that his, is his know. that is definitely his energy yeah um, um, yeah i guess there is a new york naval militia the naval militia of the state of new york under the authority of the governor of new york so maybe that's huh. what uh it was referring to all right yeah uh, so he thinks he's been followed for years, and as shortly after he sold his apple orchard, he pieced out to Ethiopia for a number of years, which is where the We Live in Public documentary ends, where he's like living this very uh, unplugged life in rural Ethiopia. And even though, again, it's like one of the things that this documentary like fails to bring up or doesn't fully contextualize is that like it's not random that he went to Ethiopia to run away from everybody because he lived in Ethiopia in Addis Ababa for three years when he was a child when his father the CIA officer was stationed there so he and he described that as one of the happiest times in his life because it was like the only time that his dad was around most of the time um so it's like an interesting loop back to like the son of the CIA agent goes back to where his father was stationed and that's when he says all those things about not wanting to be a big mac and um, <laughs> he's, he's well spiced and if you eat him it's a good meal but still yeah. seems to be kind of um uh paranoid that like western intelligence people uh are like keeping an he eye was also on him 
Well, I mean, yeah, maybe he was hiding from them, but he definitely was also at that time, by his own admission, hiding from creditors. Oh, yeah, um, that's true. Like, he, he blew most of his money and just ran off to Ethiopia to live on the yeah, cheap for a while. he had negative money at that time. Um, yeah, and he was, I guess, coaching an Ethiopian basketball team um, or something uh, of kids. Yeah, not like like the Ethiopian yeah. team or whatever. And and <laughs> had very, like, you know, was so effu- had, had a lot of effusive praise for, like, you know, the ancient Ethiopian culture and, you know, their way, like, how deeply rooted... Mm-hmm. And like human, their ways are. Um, well, I mean, it was a little, full, a little bit. Uh, boy goes to Africa, but it was very boy goes to Africa. I mean, yeah, it was very much boy goes to Africa, like uh, very like. Oh, I need to get in touch with my spirit. You know, it's almost a cliche. Same thing with the apple orchard. Like, you know, got to uh-huh. unplug. Like, I'm gonna go rediscover. Like, you know, uh, yeah. Although, uh, you know, I will say that the uh, only uh, full uh, manuscript of the uh, Book of Enoch is in uh, Gaze, the uh, Ethiopian. Uh, like. Honestly, I, I was looking a little into Ethiopia uh, uh, around uh, like early. I think maybe we should do like an Ethiopia like like religious because they, you know, they got like ancient like Jewish tribes. They have like the oldest Christian churches. Yeah, yeah. Muslims sought sanctuary there from that's right. Persecuted by the Meccans. I, I saw uh, that. Yeah, it might be good to get someone like from Ethiopia uh, or Probably. Like, from Somalia or something, although that <laughs> might be like, you know, like uh, might mitigate, not mitigate our bias, but I don't know. Uh, yeah, yeah. But, anyway, um, yeah. but I, I think it's also worth um, mentioning that in i i don't know exactly what years that josh harris was like in ethiopia but it was i think still a sort of pro-western monarchy until 1974 when a marxist military coup overthrew the king and established like a a pro-soviet socialist government and um and according to other articles josh harris's dad died in i guess if josh harris was born in 1960, he died when Josh was 15, so he would have died around 1975, right at the time that this new government took over and actually kicked out a lot of the Peace Corps and Western NGOs and people like that that they probably rightfully suspected of being CIA fronts. So, like, I don't – like, the Josh Harris's CIA father it is incredibly hard to find information on him. Like, I just managed to find his first name, Ted in uh, the book about Josh Harris. Um, I think it's called Totally Wired, The Rise and Fall of Josh Harris and the Great Dot-Com Swindle by Andrew Smith. And I just found it yesterday, and it, it's very, it's such, such a common name that, like, Ted Harris doesn't get you, you know, very far. Yeah. Um, but uh, but I, I don't know if that had anything to do with, like, I don't know, um, his, like, relatively, it seems like early death, but uh, but just kind of in like i guess there was a lot going on in ethiopia back when his dad was stationed there so um one day maybe i'll find kind of a more you know some more snippets about like what his dad was doing because all these like hipster people around him like don't seem to think that's significant at all and even though josh harris doesn't ever bring it up like oh my dad was cia he's clearly told people that that's why they know but i don't know he once the 9-11 thing happens, he starts to sound way more conspiratorial. Like, for example, he goes back to um, – he comes back to America in, like, 2013, and that's where the filmmaker Andy Timoner meets up with him and shoots a kind of short follow-up documentary to We Live in Public that you can find yeah. on YouTube. He's living um, in Las Vegas. Yeah, um, in a kind of uh, kind of rough, like – 
Yeah, you the know, dingy apartment. Ne- like, well, you know, honestly, like, speaking of his sort of, like, sketchy uh, connections to, like, acts of mass violence, uh, his lifestyle kind of reminded me a little bit of Stephen Paddock, uh, the yeah, Las Vegas no, totally. mass shooter. Like, he was doing, like, playing poker. Like, you know, he seemed to be kind of living this nocturnal existence, you know? There's not much footage of him during the day in the, yeah. you know, the documentary. Like, uh, he said he was playing, like, uh, poker professionally for a couple of months. I don't know, like, uh, some of, a lot of it online, apparently. So, yeah, yeah it was very weird. Yeah, yeah, and what, he, he said he was, he was earning about $650 a month in profit from playing online poker, which, which is weird because he was, like, he was in the shadow of the stratosphere kind of needle and uh, was pretty close to, like, downtown Vegas and everything, but... Um, I think we, we talked a little bit before the podcast, like the interesting choice to like play poker online as opposed to like walking down the street. And you would almost think that given his beliefs about technology, that maybe uh, poker would be he'd want to play it in person because that's the only way you know that like an algorithm isn't manipulating it because he says at one point. Uh, talking about poker like I wonder every time the algorithm gives me that hand that winning hand like Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's like he seems to be implying like I wonder if it's them like the the sort of panopticonic winning hand yeah because he was saying like it's not an accident that I have no money right now you know if I wanted money I'd have it or something you know like uh so you see this is all part of some providential arc you know or I guess he could see it flip side as like if he keeps getting losing hands, he wonders about the algorithm. Of like, are they making him lose because they want him to stay poor or maybe they want him to win? Basically, it, it harks back to his like obsessive ideas that basically, you know, humans are going to give up their sovereignty and their choice. Like these choices are being made for us in a kind of occulted way by the people that are controlling these like technological systems. Yeah. So you can't that, know if you're really like winning at poker or if there is like a pure element of chance anymore. Everything yeah. could be compromised. And what he was ranting about mostly in that documentary was his idea of the cyber ship, which uh, it's kind of hard to wrap your head around. And apparently that's what a lot of uh, like venture capitalists or like television executives would say when he would go to them with the idea <laughs> that it's kind of like it's a big idea. You know, he said something like, Whenever I talk to people, they say two things. They say it's a big idea and it's hard to wrap their head around it. It's like, you can just imagine, like, you know, but he's like, yeah, well, you know, uh, you're thinking about smaller ideas. Like, uh, so like, uh, you know, uh, you can just imagine people being like, yeah, it's a, well, it's a, it's a big idea. But anyway, uh, (laughs) it was hard to wrap my head around the cybership idea, but I think that I kind of came to understand it after I watched his uh, TEDx Broadway talk, which was like, you know, kind of like a peripheral uh, version of TED Talks uh, focused on, broadway uh and it was a really weird presentation um which was kind of about his visions for like theater in the 20th century or 21st century and he was uh you know talking about what he would do if he were young you know if you were one of these young kids at columbia or yale he would uh create sort of first of all to model this he has everyone in the audience take out their smartphones uh and like shine them and then mm-hmm. he's like, uh, let's have Melanie, the great white way, come out and she's going to film you. And like some girl in like a white shirt comes out uh, and starts filming them like in reverse. And then he starts doing his thing where he's like, just like, boy, and like, you know, doing his lovey comes out for a minute. Yeah. He like that was lovey, my virtual self, you know. And yeah, but 
that was to model his idea of like the virtual or like a something like the virtual bandstand. Uh, and basically the idea is to create like a technological singularity on stage almost where the audience texts their like ideas or their thoughts to some kind of receiver that's where like kind of the orchestra pit would be in a like typical like broadway theater setup and somehow those people then relate like they process this information and sort of transmit it to the stage and then so there's like a you know a an instant or quasi instant uh somewhat mediated feedback like mm -hmm. direct like you know between the audience and the stage like uh somehow there's like a responsiveness mediated by this this digital bandstand so that's basically like before i heard that i could not understand what the hell the cyber ship was supposed to be all about mm -hmm. but the uh, basically the cyber ship is that on like a planetary scale where there's this massive ship uh, I don't know if it's on the ocean or if it's in the sky. It's very hard to tell. Or in cyberspace. Uh, yeah, it, but it almost seemed like he was saying that it was going to be in the sky because he he like referred to the stratosphere needle as being like the cyber ship needle, and there yeah. were also some virtual illustrations of like you know things going up. It almost seemed the cyber ship was going to be, and of course the ship, you know, going on. But it almost seemed yeah. like the ship was going to be some physical node or place. Uh, that would receive information, then it would be processed, then it would go to, like, the master channel. And it was basically the same idea that he was trying to, to get out there. Um, and hmm. It yeah. almost sounds like, like, a, like a TikTok house or something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like a TikTok house that would, like, somehow mine all these ideas. And, and everybody then... wants to get into the TikTok house. Yeah, but exactly. But you have to, like, uh, earn... Um, you have to earn points. I think, didn't he say it was something about like how yeah, like, like you would liking is inefficient. If, yeah. You would get paid to like, you know, if you're yeah. working online, you know, you somehow get paid out of that uh, for your attention. Like, yeah. Which I uh, wonder now is like, uh, if that is something we might see in the next like five years of this kind of model of, you know, maybe if to deepen the, the, the cathexis, if you will, um, they're going to start, offering these kind of things where like you get paid for like your you get like micro payments for your attention yeah um i mean to play i mean i could say to play devil's advocate although i feel like as you talk about in the show like the devil's advocate isn't really taking the like unusual position nowadays i feel like that should be called god's advocate but anyway to take like a <laughs> contrary Ooh, to, i like it I like <laughs> to it. take a contrarian position um, like, uh, his predictions are like in a way very impressionistic, like I, especially when it comes to the cyber ship, like it's yeah. kind of like, it reminds me of that old, like Ali G skit where he's like, you know, he goes to some guy like pitching inventions. He's like, it's a hoverboard, you know, it's a skateboard that flies. And he's like, okay, like, how does it work? And he's like, that's where you come in, you know, like there's no like actual <laughs> that, way. To that's true. He play. doesn't seem to be super. I mean, I think like he knows technology. He seems to have this great grasp of like how technology sort of functions and like, um, like a macro social kind of like a sociological yeah. way and like a psychological way, but doesn't seem to be very passionate about the actual building of it or teaming up with engineers that could build it. He's just like the idea man and just yeah, throws it, it out there. It makes sense that the time when he had the most success and the most money was like during the dot com boom, which was like kind of based on air and ideas. And when it came to like, you know, maybe delivering something a bit more when people got a little bit of a better sense of things like in that domain, uh, mm -hmm. his ideas are like very sort of fuzzy and it's just kind of this weird coprophiliac 
profit. <laughs> like, uh, well, yeah. Yeah, ju- just to expand a little bit on his, like, cybership, I think it's also, it seems like maybe it's gone through a few different kind of brand names, but this seems to be the project that he was, like, most fixated on throughout the two 2010s and at one point he was calling it netband command which was going to be like a new kind of conceptual art exhibition interesting i, I can't find sounds like the band stand uh yeah so connection there too. i think yeah. that kind of um that it summed up a lot of these ideas into a project which i'm not even sure ever actually was exhibition but just to read from this from a Purple Diary, I guess a French art magazine, uh, titled The Netband Command, Harris's vision can be described as a hierarchically ordered version of the website Chat Roulette in which anyone with a computer and a camera can become a live television channel in a globally connected network. The endeavor would offer as many opportunities for members of the general public to become celebrities as it would for large corporations to monetize our minds. An investment vehicle Harris likens to the sale of mortgage derivatives. I first met Josh in January 2011. I had tracked him down to the art dealer Gavin Brown's summer house in upstate New York where he was at work on a novel. I invited him to Manhattan to film a discussion between himself and the author Daniel Pinchback. Uh, a week after we had finished filming, Harris applied to take over MIT's prestigious media lab with the aim of studying the singularities effect, the weaving together of billions of human brains in a vast data net to form a new, higher form of intelligence. Um, and uh, I just want to mention real quick the MIT media lag you might have heard from from two main things, which is that one, the longtime person running it, I think was Nicholas Negroponte, the uh, the brother of Iran-Contra criminal and like Reagan a Bush appointee, uh, John Negroponte who also helped, got brought back to run the war in Iraq, and also uh, was the generous recipient of millions of dollars from Jeffrey Epstein. So that's cool. Um, <laughs> and I, I don't know what ever became, that's the first time I actually saw his uh, Josh Harris's name linked to the MIT Media Lab. I assume um, he was not uh, hired. I assume he was uh, not hired, yeah. But in his application, he stated, quote, There was a time in the 90s when I was one of those hot, rich internet entrepreneurs everyone talked about and envied. Some people argue that my ability to see the future is downright preternatural. Others would say that I'm the Warhol of the web. But I would just argue that Artwise Andy is simply my parentheses M ad man who promotes the factories I build. My special gift is really the ability to use technology to create the future in the present. And of course I do it with great showmanship. And then there's an interview. Then after that, he ended up in Las Vegas where he was like a year later, I guess, you know, didn't get to work uh, in the MIT media lab and ended up playing poker instead. Um, yeah. And going to a boxing gym six days a week, uh, not really showing significant gains on the front of becoming a boxer but uh yeah no it looks pretty worn down yeah and he he was yeah very jittery it, it was yeah he didn't look super good in that and uh yeah i saw something else uh i didn't watch the entire thing uh, i watched his whole talk and i watched some of the q a segment of uh the uh sort of talk he gave as part of startup fest in 2017 which i think you know uh, as i said was kind of produced uh, or like kind of came out of his popularity from we live in public and they were doing a screening of the documentary and a q a with him uh and he just basically went on like in very apocalyptic terms talking about the singularity he basically set 2024 as being the time where you know that's like the the his end point for when we're gonna be on the chicken farm you know um and uh this net ban command thing kind of reminds me of uh his answer to one person because he just went on you know with this really grim picture of the future 
and this one uh, guy said, like, I'm feeling scared. Um, you know, uh, mm-hmm. I have kids. Uh, do you think that, like, that was a mistake? You know, should we not be having kids at this point? And he said something that was like, uh, yeah, I can't really help you on the having kids front. You know, uh, I guess if I were you, what I would do is uh, get your kid into a cyber army, uh, create a cyber army, and uh, put your kid in it uh, so that you can, like, resist, you know, the, <laughs> like, you know, uh, technological domination. I don't know. Don't talk of dust and roses. Or should we powder our noses? Don't live for last year's capers. Give me steel, give me steel. Give me pulses unreal. He'll build a glass asylum. With just a hint of mayhem. He'll build a better whirlpool. We'll be living from sin. like to read another question from this purple diary interview from Xerxes cook whatever um <laughs> the, the, the interviewer is that like possessive like the cook of Xerxes or is that his no no the, the person's name is Xerxes cook which is right. you know very cool uh, very cool yes. um uh they say could the netband command be considered a democratic project that gives a voice and a television channel to anyone with a computer and a camera in that it offers them the opportunity to become a television star as long as they're interesting enough you once stated warhol was wrong people don't want 15 minutes of fame in a lifetime they want 15 minutes every day having created we live in public you're in a great position to answer this why do people feel this need for fame and josh harris says I almost think it goes back to the days of Moses and the whole thing with the idol Mm -hmm. and idolatry. Well, the concept here is that people have been conditioned by the media to idolize things they see in that same media. It creates a blatant demand from the audience to be the celebrities that they are seeing. The problem now is that even reality shows are extremely inefficient in enabling that. Essentially, what what I'm proposing is a much more efficient methodology for enabling people to find their celebrity level, just like people do in real life. They can find their spot. The point is that in the NetBank Command, we are overt big brothers, meaning we are watching you and you are agreeing to allow us to watch you. The more you let us watch, the more gratifying it is for you. And Xerxes says, can you backtrack and say who's we and you in this analogy? He says, the producers and also the crew of NetBand Command, which are really the audience, a hierarchical version of the audience is acting as an entertainment version of Big Brother. You are agreeing to allow us to watch you. So I will give you a simple example. There will be a control room, and you are walking around with your mobile device listening into us. Two blocks away, somebody else is just walking around listening to us. In our control room, we see that both of you are walking and are two blocks away, and we will say that there is some reason that we want you to meet. We instruct you to meet up with each other in the middle and do something. Maybe it is a boy and a girl, and we think they would be a good match. Maybe they're 
are miles away, and we tell them what to do and where to go. People are going to allow this kind of integration into their lives because it is the new magic. There's no magic in TV. There's no magic in rock and roll or in theater. This is the new magic. This is how we enter the hive. Oh, God. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so, I it's mean, weird. hitting on a lot of stuff we've talked about before. Yes, and he... Yeah, definitely. It's weird. He definitely has this just totalitarian craving. Like, he wants to be, like, the master commander, the skipper of the cybership, the Magus, the Grand Magus Lovey uh, presiding yeah. over the net band command. He goes on to say that he wants to... They ask, like, you never seem very interested about making money, so, like, what's your end game? Like, what do you want? And he says, like, I want to take over the Tate Modern Museum. Um <laughs> And uh, and so he they said, you know, you, yeah, he said in theory, the net band command could become the largest corporation in the world. But you just said the ultimate goal would be to take it to the Tate. What motivates you? Harris says, my aim is to get into the Tate for a year and really manufacture singularities with the capital S. That is my motivation. It is not money. It is not about being recognized as an artist. If I can elegantly introduce the singularities to the world in a fine art context, then I am done. The money will come, but the problem with money is that you have a lot of it. You think about it too much. Um, and they ask, why in your definition does singularity refer to a group, group of people? And he says there is not just one. It is not monotheistic or anything like that. I think there is an ocean of them. Of course what not. To, God, you know, uh, yeah. What, yeah, Satan of course. forbid that. You know, <laughs> like, yeah. Uh, of course not. Uh, yeah. Just a bunch of daemons running around. Yeah. He said, right. I think there is an ocean of them. What happens to singularities is when we say the collective consciousness, it is not that all minds are thinking the same thing at exactly the same time. As an analogy, it is more in the vein of television channels. When there is a stream of television channels an infinite number of them and they form an ocean there's not just one overarching channel that everyone watches very simply because in the morning when you are brushing your teeth on a toothpaste channel then at 7 p.m at night eating dinner you're going to be in a different mindset channel at a different time in that time frame the derivative what is being sold i.e the mind changes okay so the derivative um, being the mind which is being sold uh um wait can we break that down a little bit? So what exactly is he saying is going to be the product there? Like well, he, he does go on their to teeth, going to the bathroom. Like he, 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 he had this idea of, of like sponsored content being fully integrated into like every single action that you do. Like you're going to yeah. be connected with other people that are brushing your teeth when you're brushing your teeth. And then there's going to be opportunities for like brand right. integrated again, advertising and stuff. Yeah. That again reminds me of that. Like to go back to his like weird poop fixation that again brings me back to the startup fest thing where he like was especially hammering the poop uh, point. And he was saying that there was going to be a market for like, you know, syncing up people going to the bathroom and seeing whose shit hits the water first. Like, you know, people taking bets on it or something like, it oh, like, become, like creating like, uh, economies of like, you know, digital currency economy. Yeah, like when almost, you go and like, like sub- when you go into the markets. toilet. Yeah, exactly. When you go and like, you know, sit down like it will match you with like a, an opponent who's also just sat down and then people will like <laughs> yeah, bet on who is going to like literally like that. He said that in his wow. startup fest talk. Like, I'm wow. not. Like, yeah, that might be, like, a slight variance from what he's... But the, the principle is the same. Like, peop, he said there would be a market for competitions to shit first. Uh, I like mean, that it's is what, like, what a horrifying but appropriate metaphor for yeah. kind of the world of social media. It's, like, betting on who can shit. Who can, yeah. like, 
expel shit. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, um, that's so yeah. much of... Uh, well, he... He does go on a little bit because uh, uh, Xerxes Cook, I'll give him credit, is uh, is kind of not letting this thread go. They say, when we've spoken <laughs> in the past, you've been Hang quite on. sure that human beings are being harvested. For what and by whom? Harris says, well, you are what you eat. We're eating manufactured food. We're eating anonymous cows slaughtered in a slaughterhouse. And if you believe in a higher order of things, you'll agree that we're on an evolutionary cycle. So it's taken four billion years for us to be prepared to grow us for our minds to be harvested. It is like that original Star Trek episode where these beings, the Talosians, use the crew as a sort of food. The idea is that the beings are there to harvest people's minds. There's another dimension out there, and that's why we are here. Uh, and Xerxes says, so to recap, we have been conditioned by television to behave in a certain way, and suddenly we now have the internet. We have interactivity and the ability to upload our thoughts and videos of ourselves to a mainframe. Is the notion of the harvest that we are giving ourselves to a higher mind, or is that mind a collective consciousness? And Harris says, our minds are becoming readable by a different dimension. They have been growing us. You're going back to television. I'm going back to the whole point of planet Earth. We are basically a greenhouse, and it has taken four billion years for them to harvest us. As time is going by, they are getting a more refined harvest. If I enter the slaughterhouse, at least when I go in, I won't be a McDonald's meal. There he goes again with okay, the McDonald's so, reference. Okay, so, yeah, this is, like, again, like, a weird thing that is not, like, what you would... It, like, even with the whole singularity paradigm, the idea that eventually we're going to reach a point where we, like, kind of a Skynet Terminator-type s- setup that you would imagine, like, but he's talking about, like, a teleology that's going back into, like, deep time or whatever, where there's some kind of external will that has been directed towards this from, like, you know, the very beginning of human civilization, so yeah, like, yeah. What, you could you know, read that yeah. as simulation theory. You could read that as ETs or some kind of yeah, cosmic interdimensional right. being. Definitely, like, like ETs in the sense of yeah, like non-human will uh, that is clearly like malevolent or predatory uh, in some way. Uh, yeah, directed towards our consumption and our harvesting, and the whole planet is a green. Like yeah, so that is like a, a you know. Yeah, it's an unusual paradigm is slipping in there. Um, yeah, <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's a lot. It, it, like, what a, a kind of dark vision of... Yeah, I wonder... What, yeah, I, I just wonder Like, is this much... evolution? Is this evolution? Like, well, I'm thinking yeah, of the meme again, with, like, the, the, the anime guy holding up a flower, like a butterfly. Yeah, <laughs> it's it's like, this, well, is that kind of, like... And so much of what we talked about on this podcast, like the meme of evolution keeps coming up. And it's something mm-hmm. that like people have different, not only are there different camps, but there are like different perceptions of it, like within each camp, you know, like uh, uh, everyone should obviously subscribe to the Elwara frequency where on mm-hmm. our last premium episode, we talked about like Blavatsky's uh, different paradigm of evolution, which he does actually talk about in terms of cycles and uh, the idea of sort of giants uh, being the sort of forebears of mankind or this idea, um, you know, we've talked about like the Urantia book and their idea of evolution kind of being mixed with a paradigm of upstepping people or, you know, a superior sort of a guided evolution and a mix of spirituality and uh, sort of natural biological evolution. Then there's the standard scientific paradigm of evolution, uh, which has, you know, varied and changed over time, our understanding of it. Um, mm-hmm. and, or, you know, the, the sort of modern scientific, uh, idea and, uh, that, you know, predominates now at least. And then of course there's just straight up creationism, you know, so the idea of evolution is probably one of the biggest 
like concepts, the most influential concepts of like the last like hundred years. Uh, mm-hmm. And it pops up again and again, but it's like it means so many different things uh, to different people in different contexts. Um, yeah, and could be like, it could be weaponized. I mean, it could be sort of utilized in all kinds of different, you know, uh, towards many different sort of teleological ends. I mean, you yeah. could look at the progress. I mean, there is obviously like the sort of a uh, like Marxist Leninist idea of evolution and progress. Yeah. Uh, then there's like the bourgeois liberal, like technocratic sense of evolution. There's a social yeah, Darwinist progress. idea yeah. of progress. There's the, even like social, the Nazi yeah, idea of Darwin. progress. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And, they, they all, I mean, everybody's committed to some idea of progress, and I, I don't know if I can... Yeah, it's na- interesting, like, how much, like, uh, you know, there's definitely something to, you know, the fossil record and the evidence that we have for evolution, but it's amazing how much, and, you know, not to say that there weren't, like, poisonous ideas or, uh, you know, bizarre beliefs or social discord, like, prior to the popularization of evolution. But it's amazing, like, what a mimetic, like, virus it's been, like, proliferating all, like, the whole, like, the, this idea of, like, you know, uh, evil, like, an evil will, humanity being cultivated by, like, an evil will Mm -hmm. from, like, our inception for, like, harvest or whatever, or even for, like, a positive end, you know, being mm-hmm. cultivated uh, by benevolent, like, external forces, like, but, yeah, that's, like, not sort of monotheistic, and it is somehow, like, this this whole, like, like Elohim Anunnaki-type paradigm, like, mm-hmm. it's amazing how, even in this context, like, we're seeing that pop up where it's not explicitly named or anything, but, like, you know, it's slipping in somehow. Um, yeah, yeah, and nonetheless, and I, I think there's a resonance with his idea of uh, Xerxes here quotes in uh, kind of paraphrases um, Marshall McLuhan's uh, famous quote that basically, I think it was Marshall McLuhan, that basically like we create ourselves and then mold our, we create tools and then mold ourselves to the uses of them. Yes, it so kind of reminds know. me of is the Rocco's Basilisk thing. Oh yeah, yeah, um, yeah, that too. He th- there's a lot of that under that there's a lot of that vibe in a lot of the things Josh Harris has says about yeah. we're creating singularities like they are out there. They right. want us to yeah. bring them into existence. It's almost like summoning demons in a way. Um, yeah. But he he has this kind of inevitable. There's an inevitable kind of subtext to everything he says that you know you can't stop this like it's yeah. going to be the way that we're, and unfortunately he's been right for the last 20 years is that yeah. you kind of can't but isn't life made possible by not knowing everything i don't know where you got that from it's not that living in public is going to be imposed on us we're going to be conditioned to ask for it Fourth quarter 2004, I'll roll out the consumerized version of We Live in Public. And I'll charge them for the platform and I'll charge them for recording their lives to disc. Now you can have it too. We'll probably start to wrap up here, but I did want to read one more quote from this Purple Diary interview um, from 2013, which I think sounds pretty relevant to the way social media is functioning right now in 2020. So Xerxes Cook asks, uh, by offering large corporations the chance to sponsor channels or certain parts of the day, like 
Crest sponsoring Breakfast Hour with Cindy Crawford, which you've given as an example in the past. Does the NetBand command give corporations more power over us and allow more intrusion into our privacy rather than giving the public more power to communicate among themselves? And what is the trade-off here? Harris says, the NetBand command is its own government. You can't get away from the fact that people have to buy and sell things. There has to be a commercial element in life, otherwise all the wheels stop. As this interview is for Purple, I will give an example from the fashion word, fashion world. The other day, I walked into the Louis Vuitton store here in Vegas, one of the biggest in the world, and there were just four people inside, three employees and me. It just doesn't make sense, right? Those three employees don't really care if I show up in the store because most of the time they're in the cloud communicating with buyers from a virtual world. In the NetBand command, the store will be used as a runway, and people come into the store and walk down the runway. The professional employees in the store are really acting as engineers and anchors like we would see on CNN, guiding the programming. The people walking down the runway are being watched by and are communicating with people in the virtual world. As for the people in the virtual world, some of them are Louis Vuitton employees, but most of them are Louis Vuitton channel people who are helping the person walking down the runway put a look together. At the moment when they are walking down the runway, the job of Louis Vuitton is to pick the right people sitting on the sides of the runway to help them dress and guide their purchase. Most likely, the people that are helping them put themselves together have already virtually communicated and know very well the person walking down the runway, even though they're not physical friends. They are virtual friends. Um, So... That, uh, not exactly, uh, like, I'm trying to picture this in my head, like, what he's practically talking about. Mm-hmm. What does that sound like to you? It does also remind me of some of the stuff that he said uh, in his Broadway talk about how he wanted people to be kind of paired up with who they would be sitting with at the show um, uh, beforehand. And then that they would uh, go out to eat before the show and maybe go to drinks after the show. And all of that would be like a product that could be sold by the producers of the Broadway show itself. Uh, And it's Hmm. the same sort of thing where he's trying to monetize like all the social interaction around these things. Like, uh, you know, just annihilate every uh, remaining aspect of like interiority for human beings Mm -hmm. uh the same kind of principle uh yeah yeah and a lot of this stuff did remind me of i I think in a way that it hasn't come to pass yet in the way that he's talking about it where like every broadway producer and every clothing manufacturer like louis vuitton is going to build up some version of this tech just for their own service but what i i think the way that Silicon Valley has ended up accomplishing this in another way is by building these monolithic social media platforms that then get adopted. It's like they're already built to be kind of universalized and integrated into all different types of activities and business. So then everybody ends up integrating with Twitter or integrating with Etsy Mm -hmm. or Facebook or you name it or Pinterest or things like that. And then you do get a certain, or it made me think a lot about like advertising fashion on Instagram. I know Mm -hmm. that a lot of people can relate to uh, probably especially female users of Instagram. The sort of nonstop and ever more sophisticated barrage of clothing advertisements. Yeah, I get the same thing. I get tons of clothing ads for all sorts of things, like for sweaters, yeah. for everything. A lot of the time I get, I don't know, maybe because I'm Muslim, I get like kimono ads, like stuff <laughs> like that, like weird, like kind of like uh, otaku, like fashion or something. Like, uh-huh. you know, uh, 
yeah, I'm Muslim, not a weeb. Uh, but anyway, uh, <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, I don't know what it is, but yeah, like harem pants and stuff. But yeah, and there's really no way to stop this sort of surveillance in that respect. Yeah, I definitely see the thing where like I've tried so hard to get these soft like these programs to stop listening to me, but I just am thwarted every time. Oh, like, yeah, yeah. I just there's no way know. to do it. And yeah. you, I think everybody's had this experience now. I remember a few years ago, uh, it must depend when like the algorithms, you know, were developed. But I, I remember maybe it was like 2016, 2017, that it was almost like a, a recurring joke you could make with all kinds of, you know, different friends and family of like, have you ever noticed that when you're having like a in-person conversation with somebody and you're mentioning certain subjects and then you go on a social media app later and like all the ads on Instagram are referring yeah. to what you talked about or, or you know, even you in very invasive ways. Like if even you're things confi- that you've yeah, handled in a store, like if you've, you know, like looked at Oreos or something like while your phone camera was out, like you'll be getting like it's a, it's very. Yeah. It's extremely invasive and granular and, and probably just, yeah, like they probably have access to the data of what you are buying in the store. So if you buy something, obviously, yeah. like the credit card companies probably have some, you could imagine like a lot of the rewards programs at different grocery stores when you swipe that card to get savings. It's almost like what you're actually uh like the amount of savings is the exchange value of your data going to like data analytics firms or something to be reharvested into uh, Facebook mm-hmm. or Google and things like that. Obviously, I think by now everybody understands that anything you type in physically uh, yeah, you know, can be used to, to sort of calculate your interest. But also maybe we mentioned it talking about Cambridge Analytica, how like even the the scroll time you know, like I know that oh, actually the social dilemma documentary talks about this where like like linger time. I forget the exact term for it, but, you know, the amount of time that you pause on something when you're scrolling down the page is calculated. Yeah, so wow. the algorithm can tell that, oh, like you were mildly interested in this, even in like an infinitesimal Ugh. like two seconds you stopped on this. Like it factors that into what it's selling you. And in some cases it does come out with things where it's like, in some respects, it's it's oddly good at predicting like your style or what you might actually be into, which of course mm-hmm. makes it effective advertising. But then sometimes you'll get things that just feel like off. Like it's it's like the algorithm is making assumptions about you based on little bits of your life that it's yeah. surveilling. And, and it think, comes out. Yeah, I think Josh Harris's thing is that like there's going to be a tipping point where suddenly this machine actually knows you better than you know yourself. Like where you'll be like, oh, are you kidding me? Like you think I'm you know, and Otaku or something like, you you know, or whatever, like it'll suddenly have this mastery over you. Like, uh, and you're right. I mean, he, uh, he is right. I'm kind of having this realization. Like now you talk about it, like, you know, we've all just tolerated this almost because like, it seems so benign or like, uh, not truly like, you know, self-aware, but there could easily be that moment where suddenly this thing actually does have a greater mastery of like you know how to use this information or this is kind of closing in on us yeah Um, yeah and i honestly i don't even think he it sounds like the way things are going now in 2020 that 2024 is kind of not not 
might not be a bad guess as to when uh, this fully consolidates and kicks up to an even deeper level where yeah. you know we're seeing the groundwork being laid for it right now. But I, I think you can definitely see in the last five years that this type or, of data tracking has gotten more sophisticated and better or, at predicting. And we've definitely seen in the last six months how every, every interaction is being moved to a virtual sphere. Like, yeah, more than uh, before uh, in a huge way. Like, uh, you know, I would like Zoom weddings, Zoom Uh funerals. uh, I remember seeing on Twitter that there was it was going around. I assume it was real, but I think it was like from, I don't know, it was either a high school or a college professor that was sending out an angry email to their students saying that, I don't know if this is a functionality within Zoom or like an extra app you can get if you're a boss or an educator, but that basically like uh, somehow they were studying the analytics of like where your eyeballs were at on the screen. And they said like all of you, like most of you scored under 70% attention rate because your eyes were not fixed on like my screen and blah, blah, blah. And like, I'm going to be monitoring this from now on. And like anybody that's not actually paying attention is going to be docked points and like blah, blah, blah. And it's like, oh, there's already a Silicon Valley company that is doing this for, you know, people thought that, you know, remote work or working from home might be in some way liberating at first. But how liberating is it going to be when they can track your eyeballs? Yeah. On the webcam and see whether or not you're hard at work or paying attention. This is like a level of surveillance. And the work-life divide starts to deteriorate even further. Exactly. Like, what does it change when, you know, oh, you punch out for the day? Like, they're going to stop monitoring you, like, or the, you know, the services that they use, like, when they click, like, I accept, you know, on your behalf. Uh, Does that mean that they can? Off? Yeah, yeah like, right. You know. We we know that like a phone, like microphones on iPhones have a functionality, like a backdoor, where you know the NSA. They don't or, turn off. Yeah. Yeah, like they'll turn on even when the phone is is just sitting there, and uh, and that's one of the things that I think like activating Siri on your phone, in the terms and conditions, like tacitly says that you know Siri can basically be on all the time listening to you. And then yeah. I think it's naive to think that that information is not going into these big data farms and Absolutely, is being yeah. used to, and, uh, like, it, as Josh Harris, like, kind of predicted to condition you in, like, a two-way, like, a lab rat experiment where, yeah. and, like, a, an ever-increasing, ever-sophisticated in- feedback loop to the point where you have to wonder at what point is this thing actually shaping your personality in a very fundamental way. We already know that it has an influence on our psychology and our personality, mm-hmm. but maybe, I don't know if it's like, I'd say it's maybe getting there. I mean, with young kids today that have grown up pretty much with most of their conscious lives and childhoods, people have had smartphones everywhere. And there have been screens all over the place. Like, they are so... Just like Josh Harris said with, like, Gilligan's Island being... Because it was on Saturday mornings and millions of children watched it. So that, you know, basically, Gilligan's Island was... He makes an argument that it was, like, more influential than almost anything else in generationally for the people that were children when it was on. And how much more impactful is social media today than yeah. a show like Gilligan's Island that's so low tech compared to what they have now and the kind of interest you can get drawn into and the lack of discernment that adolescents almost like by 
definition lack. They don't. Abs- they lack yeah. the discernment and the life experience, and kind of, unless their parents very explicitly. Uh, but even of course, you know, adults don't fully understand the system either. Absolutely, it shapes. We're trying to figure it out. I mean, we just did our episode about QAnon, where we see how uh, susceptible boomers are to this type of thing. Like, in fact, as you're we were talking about this, I'm thinking about like this show. You know, like uh, the, it's interesting to think like you know how the work that we do for this is going to be mined and instrumentalized to create like QAnon 2.0 to psyop like all Americans. You know, like <sighs> yeah, I, you yeah, can't like, rule it out. You can't rule it out. Uh, yeah, um, you yeah. Know, to we're think that hoping we're just- well, we're yeah. hoping that, like, you know, the listeners can stay vigilant and, like, you know, uh, wake up and then use that information, like, themselves and not, like, be outwitted by, like, machines or, like, Silicon Valley, uh, like, uh, flesh machines. Mm-hmm. But, like, uh, that's a gambit. Uh, it is hoping, a gambit. You know, it's in our hands, you know, it's not, yeah. uh, it's not a sure thing. Um you know, no, yeah, we, we could like uh, one can hope, inshallah, like all this work is not just like going to be mined and farmed by recapitulated that, you know? into yeah. in the sort of Debordian sense. Like, yeah, like recuperated yeah. into the machine of domination. I think we which, can definitely say that they will like try maybe not, you know, not to say like this in particular, but like you know, this type of thing that anyone does, you know, anytime. Well, I, Certainly I, I think, that always happens. But yeah, I think that yeah, there needs to be. Like, you know, Josh Harris himself said there's going to be that moment where we see the door closing and we can get out. So, like, we just need to be prepared to take advantage of that. Um, You know, if, like, his predictions are true, that is part of them. So we just need to do, you know, not let the door close. No, Uh, no. And I, I, I think maybe, like, one of the primary objectives of this podcast is to make people deeply, like... It, deeply vigilant and suspicious of this technology not not to say that you should you know burn it all run off and go and live in the forest like the unabomber can't rule out that one day it might come to that but like yeah. for now at least like you just have to because it, it's kind of a simple thing like it's but it's it's so occulted and hidden in the mass media that we consume and on these platforms themselves to basically show, you know, they don't show you the work that goes on under the hood. You don't see the mechanisms that are they're developing and employing on you, and then you maybe find out about it a few years later after they've already moved on to the next more sophisticated thing. You know, it's like, oh, by the time Snowden came out about the NSA, and actually Josh Harris said something very interesting in, like, one of, I think, the 2013 interviews that he did where he kind of without saying Snowden he referenced like the the leaks that came out of that and like everybody everything you know he said all that stuff that the NSA is doing that just came out well that's just scratching the surface that's just the tip of the iceberg of what the companies are doing of what Mm -hmm. Google and Facebook and all these other people are doing and I think that's actually spot on I think that in a way you know maybe it wasn't intended in this way but kind of the the red herring of the NSA, which had been basically if it's like if you wanted to believe it, it had been talked about as early as like 2005, I think, in The New York Times. Um, They actually spiked the story until after George W. Bush got reelected, which is, you know, good, good liberal New York Times behavior um, as usual. But like if you wanted to be a little bit skeptical, 
you would kind of you'd be able to find articles in the mainstream press that yeah they were like hoovering up everybody's data and everything you do it's just that Snowden kind of like provided some of these documents that sort of explicitly showed you like their PowerPoint presentations about like how like the actual programs they're using to do it and maybe to an extent like how deep it went but I think at that point in 2013 like they the the private companies were already leagues ahead of building the next iteration of that and people spent like four or five years just focusing on like the NSA but like still implicitly trusting Facebook and Google they didn't really get hit that hard in the whole Snowden revelations because I think the kind of worst thing that Snowden would say about them is that like they had a habit of collaborating with the big bad NSA not that they were data harvesting projects from the start that were you know that were risen up and given seed funding by entities connected to like the U.S. government and the national security state, which is the reality. Um, and, uh, and so it allowed this kind of cool like misdirection. And I think you can even see it now. Like you do have to stay vigilant with, I'm noticing that, you know, uh, coming out and saying that you're like a socialist and then getting like 27,000 followers and becoming like a thought leader on Twitter yeah. and, you know, like putting or that rose emoji. Or going to uh, fight an imperialist war uh, with the SDF in Syria and uh, then coming back, starting a podcast uh, where you're the number one interpreter of like any kind of uh, subliminal or conspiracy related content for like an entire <laughs> generation of leftists and the most unimpeachable hero on the entire American left. Hmm. Yeah, like that. Um, yeah, yeah, maybe a little yeah, like that. Yeah, that like if, if that happened, yeah, like that, like hypothetically. Uh-huh. Um, yeah, hypothetically, yeah. just spitballing. Yeah, here. like if there were a figure like that, um, you know, who was calling an airstrikes on an iPad uh, and then like became the channel through which like all the curiosity around like Epstein or any kind of, uh, you know, sinister hidden things like that. Like uh, uh, any know. kind of left conspiracy theory dealing with U.S. imperialism or mm-hmm. CIA covert operations overseas or social manipulations. Yeah. Uh, maybe co-opting the counterculture um, yeah, over the such years. A, such a hypothetical person would be like, you know, a good example of what you're describing. Uh, uh-huh. you know, uh, yeah. yeah. But, and even more, what I've noticed now, which has been getting a lot of uh, controversy on Twitter, is the sort of phenomenon of left veterans, you know, socialist mm-hmm. vets. And yeah. to what degree should we trust them or let them into organizations or, you know, are they canceled forever for being imperialist stormtroopers or can they change? And, you know, did they get uh, radicalized by their time in the army or, you know, were they just the victims of the poverty draft, which is like a new, a new term that I've seen floating around. And there are a lot of these accounts. Also, a lot of them, they're like, they have an OnlyFans and they're like posing like in like naked with like an AR-15 and like a Soviet flag. And suddenly they're all like, ooh, I'm a Stalinist. Like, <laughs> and, um, yeah. Um, and they're, they're showing up at all the protests and they want everybody to jump on their signal group chats. And they're just like extremely visible every day. And they all, have like overnight you know even though they, some by their own admission have been uh have been socialist for i don't know like six months or something and like got yeah. out of the, uh, the military in like march uh but now they're like super radicalized and like how dare you question them and i'm not even saying that like 
I think that hypothet in like I don't know just a broadly defined world that like yes like people are dumb and join the military not realizing what it is and I can hypothetically conceive of somebody joining it mostly for financial reasons that realizes it's fucked up while they're in and then gets out and then develops a more radical political orientation I'm not saying that doesn't happen but should you be like the celebrity Twitter thought leader of like said revolutionary movements and then also showcase that you don't really understand imperialism or your own role in it and you just think that like because like I know how to use a radio like those are skills that leftists are gonna need in the revolution uh or like I'm a medic you know and it's like as if you know normal working people can't figure out how to work a fucking radio or you know tie a uh, tourniquet but yeah that well, kind of stuff is like huh um i, I don't know about that like even leaving aside like the issue of like the military involvement i think it's a general trend like that can be exploited easily like where i mean it's kind of a cliche point but having like these kind of like idols or big figures like it's a bit like, you know it's a dangerous situation like i certainly you know yeah we have a podcast uh but I would certainly set myself apart from uh, some podcasters in that I think, like, definitely, like, you should, like, confirm, like, uh, everything I say. Like, this is supposed to be a jumping off point for you guys, like, you know, think for yourself, you know? Like, uh, there's certainly some people out there who, like, get a podcast and they're going to declaim about, like, you know, everything, like, uh, and like be, like, left thought leaders or whatever, or thought leaders, like, uh, of any kind of politic or whatever. And, like, I, like, you know, I don't know about Dimitri, but I personally, like, do not, like, think that that is, like, how this should be taken, and I'm skept- I'm suspicious yes. of that entire, like, thing, uh, which I think that people can infer, like, the, the various individuals uh, who I'm referring to, like... Uh, yeah, and yeah, I, like, I think that yeah. <clears throat> I see it um, as as kind of um, the the cultivating an ethic of revolutionary skepticism, but also yeah. a kind of openness to consider things that are not like you have to juggle both. Like you have to be skeptical of things that seem to be almost predisposed to appeal to you and your tastes and your you know. Um, in your interests, uh, but then simultaneously not close yourself off like certain podcasts that I've listened to that cover uh, QAnon that are just so like drenched in snark and irony that it's like an absolute, they end up basically like even going not just sort of mocking what the Q people believe, but even things adjacent to that, like that, that like sex trafficking exists in an organized crime kind of fashion. Uh, they just, it, it ends up shutting you off. And I think like even using, cause I think those are two modes, right? One is like, this is how you build a party. And like, you know, yeah. uh, like I'm not pushing a one man revolutionary line here. You know, I don't have a party. I'm not in an org. And I think once you read up uh, on COINTELPRO enough, you, that's not a unreasonable position to have. I know a lot of people kind of feel that way. Like you have to be so careful that anything that advertises itself as an org that's like Marxist or communist, like the idea that it's not going to be quickly infiltrated by, yeah, you know, like especially if it's in any way successful or is like effective, it's going to draw that fire. But then the other version of it is kind of this uh, cloaked behind irony and sort of like black pilled humor is, you know, I understand the appeal of it, 
But then it almost uh, it, it leads you into a similar cul-de-sac, uh, and often often a cul-de-sac called you just like vote for Bernie or suck it up and vote for Biden. That ends up being where it leads at the end yeah. of the day. And it another another in, interesting part of the whole like black pill irony is like the deflection of the suspicion. Like people can't like engage with it honestly. It's just like LOL. Like you think oh, I'm in the CIA? Like, oh yeah, LOL, LOL, LOL. I'm CIA. Like, which is, like yeah, the mantra like, of those playing people. along. Yeah, like uh, well you know yeah. Uh, that's why, like, you know, uh, it's good. I, I, I like being in the sweet spot of small, uh, mid accounts. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, yeah, if, uh, like our accounts were ever to blow up, which I doubt would ever happen, uh, or if our viewership ascends to the point of some of the groups that we're talking about, which I also doubt would ever happen, then I would invite, uh, you know, any, uh, suspicion, uh, and concern that, uh, we had been subverted by, uh, the deep state if we got to the point where we were making a million dollars a month, uh, for doing, uh, nothing. <laughs> uh, I mean, I feel like we're already putting more work in, uh, than a lot of those people who make I do, honestly, month, genuinely, anyway, yeah. I, I don't want to boast, but I feel like sometimes when I listen to, like, these ones that have, like, Patreon followers and, like, the thousands, it's like they're kind of phoning it in in a lot of ways, yeah. like, mm-hmm. just coasting on that parasocial yeah. relationship, but yeah. we want to try to be... small mid-accounts. That's the magic of the small mid-accounts, you know. It is. Uh, it, it, it really is. Um, um, so, but, like, we're... Yeah. We're trying to stay in this kind of like vigilant space where we're not giving ourselves over because I think, as Josh Harris has said, that, you know, they, they probably already have algorithms to, I don't know, like you just look at like, like socialism being something that was completely marginal and not taken seriously like five years ago. And now it is such a meme, but it has also become such an empty meme that we have, like, what does it mean that we have democratic socialists in Congress, like AOC? Like, she's basically just, like, a liberal with a different yeah. kind of branding. Oh, she's sorry, not I didn't qualitatively... know who Yitzhak Rabin is. Uh, <laughs> you never heard of him before. Uh, oops. Um, yeah, yeah or, or, or Julia um, Salazar, whose, like, grandfather was, like, a like a, a cocaine trafficker or something like that. Like, like a the, the old white, uh, you know, Colombian yeah. high-class, like, drug smuggler per pilot or something like that. Um, allegedly, don't sue me, Julia Salazar. But these yeah, people are not <laughs> offering... They're clearly so being... I don't think they were ever separate from the Democratic Party structure, but it's like I will give them points that it was savvy to create these young celebrity pop politicians that could do like 40 Instagram stories a day and just like, so guys, like I'm making mac and cheese and made me really think about structural inequality and like, yeah. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. And, and it's all on the, it's all like sentimental. It's personality based. Yeah. It's like creating a virtual kind of friendship with this person and mm-hmm. it's, it's not what you know in an ideal society you know in a representative republic uh you would want somebody to like fight real battles or whatever but you know i mean it's 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 in a pretty sad state of things and um so you have to be you know it's comfortable to think that like socialism is winning or as you know uh lieutenant spencer rapone said you know communism will win but these things are not preordained and saying it doesn't make it so well we should start we should start wrapping up as we said we were gonna do like uh i don't know like 45 minutes ago but uh (laughs) you know or something but like uh you know i do think that uh a like an important point is 
like the uh, sort of transference or the sublimation of like the religious instinct or like the annihilation of the interiority. And the like, uh, I saw this very fascinating picture of four conservative women sort of pressing their hands to like the door of the Supreme Court, which has all these very interesting kind of like woodcuts or, or for, you know, something, I don't know exactly the artistic term, but like these sort of uh, embossed uh, images of different like uh, episodes from legal history or whatever, like frescoes mm-hmm. or something. Um, and uh, I guess they're not frescoes, but whatever. Anyway, uh, so, and uh, then there's this one woman on the floor just like, uh, or on the ground, uh, just crying as these women are standing, like, you know, in the, in the background, like, with their hands on the door praying, you know, um, so, and one sort of crying for, for RGB, and there's just, like, this sublimation of these sort of religious impulses, the thing about the inside, like, you know, even our academic philosophy, you know, is very critical of the idea of, like, the self, you know, or, like, Mm -hmm. uh, is there any real inside to a person, or are we all just constructed socially, like, environmentally? Like, I'm not saying that our environment has no impact on us, of course, it's not true, but, like, the idea of using technology as a self, like, to, uh, you know, counterbalance that, to cultivate, like, an inner life that's, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, that's being attacked, um, Mm -hmm. and being, like, marginalized more and more, and I think that that is, like, you know, rather than putting all this energy into, uh, you know, and of course there can be critiques of this being reactionary and being like, oh, you know, you're being religious, like, saying to, you know, submit our political energy into, like, praying, uh, you you religious fool, but, like, (laughs) Uh, I am saying that, like, the, like, the investment that people have in these figures, like, is not healthy and, like, yeah. is part of this trap that we've been describing in this episode. I, yeah, um, like, yeah. as Josh Harris said, it, it reminds you of Moses and idolatry yeah. and all yes. that, the golden yes. calves. Yeah, yes, exactly. Uh, like, this is yeah. your God, yeah. Um, and I yeah. think... I don't know if you didn't think that the internet was inherently satanic, uh, up, you know, by getting to this episode, I hope that we've impressed upon, you know, <laughs> yeah, some kind of, just in some kind of philosophical <laughs> sense. It um, definitely is just a daemon machine that is trying to steal all our souls and kill our interiority. So like our souls yeah. have nowhere to go, have nowhere to look, but to the machine and the yeah. screen. I just want to uh, read this quote uh, that I think you pulled out of one of these articles um, from uh, Josh Harris, just to emphasize this is what he's talking about as his sort of artistic work. He wants to sort of model the singularity. And at least in this article, he's saying his point is to kind of be a wake up call to people. And he's saying, you know, these guys at Google are saying, fuck you. We're going to put the human mind out of business. Well, I don't accept that. We're at a tipping point. We can make decisions when people get out, you know, of his art project. Uh, they are going to look at the world and they'll ask themselves, do they want the world that we live in now or a chicken factory? That's the whole thing. So uh, <laughs> I think that is like, a, you know, one of his uh, better points um, and, uh, yeah. you know, a, a yeah. good uh, thing. I also just wanted to add uh, before uh, we wind down, uh, Dimitri's earlier reference to the Unabomber uh, was purely to do with his lifestyle in the wilderness. Uh, we do not promote any kind of terroristic threatening or violence at all. Uh, yeah, good um, point. Good yes. point. Yeah, it's yeah. worth mentioning. Though I think we um, definitely should do a Unabomber MK Ultra episode. Yeah, uh, for sure. The Unabomber is super interesting, but yeah, just uh, it, you know, a lot little, of uh, some similarities maybe stuff. in terms of maybe trauma they received in their young adolescence and were kind of uh, impacted by certain CIA figures in their lives. And then, like, Josh Harris went on to be this, like, psychotic evangelist, uh, this soothsayer of technology, and Ted Kaczynski just went on to, like, completely reject it and, like, run away from it. 
There's really also a great people. documentary that I think you told me about also that is the, kind the of net about... or the web. Yeah, the, something like that yes i think the german documentary right right yeah 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 we could do a deep dive on that because that gets more into like why was he targeting computer scientists and like his kind of his his animosity towards the the building of the internet specifically was a huge part of his whole like bombing campaign that i think gets uh gets sort of sublimated sometimes you could kind of say that Josh Harris, like, you know, his plan of, like, trying to spook people with these art projects, like, you know, uh, kind of, like, ironically modeling, uh, you know, what the singularity will be like through these dystopian art installations, like, is one tactic to try to, like, quote-unquote prevent it, whereas the Unabomber's approach was to just, like, you know, use bombs. Um, True. So, yeah, it's simil- I think the, similar. I think the Unabomber was more dedicated to destroying yeah. it than Josh Harris. Josh Harris had uh, a, a sort of yeah. dualistic, like, yeah, wanting yeah, yeah, to yeah, bring yeah, it yeah. into existence. Mm-hmm. I mean... Oh, uh, for th- sure. Yeah, th- he was more seduced. He looked into the abyss and the abyss... Well, he looked into the, the, black, the black mirror of the TV screen. Yeah. And uh, <clears> there's a good quote from the documentary that was, like, he finally crawled into the TV, but... Uh, the control was no longer in his hands, you know? Yes, exactly. Um, uh, Last question before we go. Do we think that the the Quiet We Live in Public project was a sort of Stanford prison experiment that was actually covertly or in some way sponsored or requested by the CIA or associated parties to test out the hellscape of social media that we now all live in? Uh, I don't, I mean, I think kind of, like, I think at least like to a reasonable extent. Yeah. Like, it seems like there's a lot of spooky figures connected to it. So Mm. like whether or not like that was the purpose in the mind of Josh Harris, uh, like, uh, you know, whether he was privy to it, it definitely seems that people were observing it and him, uh, Mm -hmm. who might've had that object in mind. Um, yeah, I yeah, would agree. There definitely are some agree. sauce connections. Uh, yeah, sure. Harold Kaufman. Yeah, you had like an MK yeah. Ultra scientist there, like advising everybody. And but maybe yeah. he's so maybe he grew up so in that stew that he sort of doesn't even notice how. Yeah, or, maybe or maybe he's maybe smart enough York... to notice not to men- not to draw attention to that part of it. Or the New York art scene is so inherently sus and so inherently suffused with people who are, like, you know, uh, plugged into that, that it's almost, like, not unusual for an art installation. Yeah, um, this is just the know, next iteration of, ab- like, the CIA yeah. funding abstract expressionism to, like, yeah. destroy Soviet culture. <laughs> um, um, yeah, okay. Well, I think we'll leave it there for now. Highly recommend you can... um. You could find We Live in Public. Uh, I don't think it's free on Amazon Prime anymore, but you could rent it cheaply. Yeah. Or for those uh, who may have Canopy for whatever reason, you can. Watch that's right, Canopy. Canopy the yes. many many library card holders have access to yes. Canopy. Mm-hmm. Um, yes, get a library so, card. Uh, you know the libraries are are good. <laughs> it's not bad. Um, okay, so we'll we'll see you guys uh, next time on uh, for our patrons. Thank you to all who have signed up. Um, yes. Our are whopping strong uh, 14 apostles um, so far. If you want to sign up for the Alwara Frequency, you can go to patreon.com slash subliminaljihad, and we will be back later this week uh, with a sort of companion episode to this, which is about the the West Coast version 
of an online TV network in the 1990s, the Digital Entertainment Network, um, which is, if you can believe it, even darker than this story. Yes. So you guys should sign up. But if you uh, don't want to, your regularly scheduled jihad will continue uh, next week as well. Uh, For our 13th episode, uh, it will be, you know, an appropriately uh, themed episode. Okay. So until next time... um, Keep your eye on the door of the chicken factory and stay yeah. vigilant. And on the skies in case of, in case of giants. Uh, yeah, peace out. <laughs>